Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. Good evening. It's me, Tazai Pamit, and it's Wednesdays. Wednesday, it's Pi Day. It's uh, the birth of the day that we celebrate the birth of uh, of Albert Einstein, and unfortunately, we look at the death of Stephen Hawking today. Kind of an interesting way that the universe works. Anyhow, <laughs> uh, Jason Mankey with uh, Patheos Pagan uh, and Raise the Horns Radio usually takes the first Wednesday that he does a show, which is the second Wednesday, um, off so I can run a rerun. So since we're coming up on Ostara, I figured, and because his latest um, blog is about Ostara, I dug up one of his Ostara shows. So enjoy this. Don't worry. New show after this with Pamit's Porch. We are inviting Kari Taring and Diana Paxson back to discuss more of their work and what they'll be doing at Paganicon and Diane Paxson's new new uh, book, Odin, and some of the music that Kari does. So that's coming up, as well as Gabriella Tevins of Laughing Brook Spellcraft and Ancestral. I'm going to say this wrong. Laughing Brook Ancestral and Sparecraft. We'll get this right. <laughs> I promise. By the time that, that Gabby's on, we will have that down pat to talk to her about some of the things that she has going on, including a really interesting um, event to help save the raptors here in uh, in North Carolina. So with, my, with no further ado, ado, and hopefully I can learn how to speak in an hour. Here's Jason Mankey's A Star Show here on Pagan's Tonight Hey, Radio it's Network. that mystical, magical fourth Wednesday of the month. That means it's time for another edition of Raise the Horns Radio. I'm Jason Mankey. This is my show, or as they used to say, Chew. This is a really big show. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us tonight. It's our big Ostara Easter Spectacular. Oh, it's going to be exciting or boring, depending on how you feel about Easter and Ostara. And I'm going to talk about both of them because they're really sort of mixed up together. But before we get to that part of the show, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I've been up to the last couple of weeks. This last weekend, over the spring equinox, I got to visit Minneapolis, Minnesota for the very first time and be a part of this year's Paganicon. Boy, don't we love words with con in them? Pantheacon, convocation, Paganicon. And if you know anything about the greater pagan world, Minneapolis, Minnesota is often called Paganistan because it has a pretty large number of pagans living there. It's probably helped that Llewellyn is based there and has been for decades and decades. So they've got a leg up on a lot of places. When you've got the biggest occult publisher right next door, you might end up being pretty big. There's a nice size festival, about five to 600 people this year, which I think was a new record for them. 
So that was pretty exciting to be a part of that. They had a couple of big special guests, of which I was not one. Ugh, my fragile ego is broken. But they had T Thorn Coyle and Crystal Blanton, Evo Dominguez, who I had a really nice conversation with, which was nice. And then, of course, the great Heather Green, who edits The Wild Hunt. She's one of our favorite people in all of Pagandom. Those were the big names. And I was there and a couple of other folks. You know, it was just really laid back and nice. And you never know what you're going to get when you go into a festival, especially when you go by yourself. This one is was really different for me than the last couple that I've been a part of. When I go to PantheaCon, that's 10 miles from my house, and my whole coven goes. And there are all these people I've known for over a decade now who go there, you know, neighbors. But I used to go there before I even lived in California, and I met a bunch of folks, and they're the ones I still see there. So it's very comfortable. You know, I know a lot of people, and that makes things easier. Going to Convocation in Michigan is much the same thing, because I lived in Michigan for a very long time. And when I go back, I'm seeing very old friends, um, seeing old coven mates and, you know, old lovers and all kinds of things. Isn't that a little TMI? Yeah, it was, but you got it anyways. So those are always easier when you know lots of people. But Paganicon was nice. Really, really good hotel in Minneapolis. I don't know what it means exactly, but all three of the biggest sort of spring-winter gatherings are all at Doubletree Hotels. It's a little confusing to me because I seem to constantly have a Doubletree plastic door opener in my pocket all the time. I guess they're really not keys, are they? Electronic keys? I don't know, I'm old-fashioned. I'm used to going to hotel rooms with actual metal keys, or at least, you know, I did before I became an adult. Anyway, another Doubletree hotel, something... Something tells me that the Doubletree has a binder called How to Operate Pagan Gatherings. They seem to do it so much. So the hotel was nice. Big workshop areas, which was great. It was a little strange of a schedule, especially for me. You know, I had two things to do on Saturday and two things to do on Sunday. And if you've ever been to a pagan festival, you know that by Sunday afternoon, most everybody is gone. So that was really frustrating to fly 1,500 miles across the country and then get two sort of late Sunday slots with most people gone. But Saturday, had a pretty big crowd for Drawing Down the Moon lecture, and I met some people that I think I'm going to be talking to in 10 years. So that's really great. So overall, really good experience. I hope I get to go back. Um, I would love to spend more time with a lot of those people in Minneapolis. So that's what I've been up to. I'm also trying to finish my Witch's Book of Shadows book for Llewellyn. It's like, how many times can I say the word book in one sentence? Ugh, this has been a nightmare to write. I hope when it comes out next year, it will be a good dream to read, but it has been a nightmare to write. When I tell people that, they're always sort of surprised. But then, you know, I like to tell them, hey, what the hell do you do with a book of shadows? You write in it, you read from it. It's not like a real a traditional tool, like a athame or something, which you use multiple times in ritual and you use it to project energy. You know, book of shadows exists to tell you how to use other things or what to say. So it's really different and 
my editors at Llewellyn want to make everything sort of go back to the book. So I can't just put a spell that would be in the book. The spell has to do with books. It's been quite a conundrum for me. And I don't think I've ever hated writing a book more than this one. Though some of the chapters were fun. We'll see when it's all said and done. This gives me a nice break to do the show. So ignore my whining. I'm really happy to have you with me. This is one of my favorite times of year. I've always really enjoyed late March, early April, the Ostara Easter time. I have to say, uh, as growing up as a young Christian, and I'm not somebody who hates Christianity necessarily, it always sort of bums me out when Easter's in March. Because Easter is America's great spring holiday, since we don't really have room for anything else on the calendar. And to have it in March is just too early. And I miss seeing the plastic grass and the little bunnies and stuff at the grocery store when they're gone by April 1st. It's really not my favorite when Easter is this early. And But Ostara has always been, for me, sort of this, wow, I can't believe that spring is coming back sort of moment. It really was the end of winter, especially when I lived in Michigan. Sometimes Ostara often meant a lot of snow, and I've celebrated Ostara's with two feet of snow on the ground. But even when there's two feet of snow on the ground, you know that it's almost done that it's almost through for another year. So it was always a very help, hopeful time of year. You know, always things are going to get better. And as such, I always saw it as the first truly spring Sabbath, especially in the Midwest. In bulk, it's a nice holiday, but it is not spring-like in February in many places in the country. And Ostara was the first sort of breath of spring. I've done a lot of really great Ostara rituals over the years. And I think my favorites probably were the ones in Michigan when it wasn't snowing and when there weren't two feet of snow on the ground. Got to do some really great ones where we used to do um, egg burying outside and if you've ever lived in the Midwest or the Northeast or the Upper West or, you know, wherever it's cold, you know that being able to go outside for ritual for the first time in several months is always a pretty big deal. So the fact that we could open up the circle and run into a public park and bury eggs in the ground was always a pretty big deal. Though, even more than being able to go outside was sort of the energy that I always felt around Ostara time. And it's something I still feel today. And it feels sort of childlike. And I don't mean that the rituals are bad or unserious or unfocused, but it puts me more with that energy where things feel new. Things look different. Things feel exciting in a way that they haven't felt in a while. My wife and I used to always sort of construct rituals around the idea of embracing our inner child when we would do a star ritual. Sometimes we'd do some coloring or something. Just two weeks ago, my coven ended up doing our star ritual early because I was in Minneapolis. So we did it a week early. And at one point, I you know, started whining a little bit like an eight-year-old. And she just looked at me and said, yep, Ostara. So yeah, it always does put me into that young time of year. 
part of that, I think, is because of our wheel of the year mythology that we've constructed over the last couple of decades. And the idea that there's a goddess and a god and they grow older together throughout the year after the crone or mother goddess gives birth at Yule and then you have this new young horned god and then this maiden goddess in February, March or whatever. Not exactly how the ancients always used to think, but it's become something that's really much a part of this modern pagan wheel of the year that we lose. And in our coven's mythology and the mythology that my wife and I have always used, it's in March, it's when the goat boy, so we can't think of a good name for like the young horned god, so we just call him the goat boy. So when the goat boy finds the maiden goddess for the first time, probably has his first direction, probably discovers masturbation for the first time. You know, and he sees her and falls in love, and she sees him and, I don't know, probably has some second thoughts, but most likely, you know, finds him attractive or whatever it's supposed to be. So when we're doing ritual, we often bring that type of goddess and god energy into the circle. And so when you bring that energy in, it's a very childish, a very young sort of 12, 13-year-old energy that's going to affect you and the people that you're practicing with and going to make you feel a lot younger. I think Ostara and Imbolc are probably the two most wildly different Sabbath rituals from place to place. Not just uh, in the United States, probably everywhere, because I think that our local climates really play a huge factor in how we celebrate those particular traditions. Um, you know, it's really easy to be all spring-like for a star when you live in California. Right now the jasmine's blooming. I have cherry blossoms on the tree that I thought was dead outside. Got a lot of new baby grapefruits growing on the grapefruit tree. There's a rose blooming in the front yard. It snowed Saturday when I was in Minneapolis. So that's a really big difference between the two places. And I've always thought it's a little bit dishonest and probably makes ritual a little disappointing when you wed sort of a British Isles tradition of the Wheel of the Year, you know, onto different places in America because the seasons just don't add up like that. They're really different. You know, what happens in London this time of year is very different than what happens in San Francisco, which is very different than what's happening in Chicago, and the best rituals should always sort of represent where you are at on the wheel of the year and where your coven is sitting on the wheel of the year. If it's not spring yet, don't celebrate it being spring. It's probably just going to make you depressed. Certainly you can celebrate the impending arrival of spring, but don't pretend something else is going on when it's not going on. That was something I always like to think about, especially when I lived back in Michigan all those years ago. You know, it's hard to separate Ostara from Easter a lot, and we are very close to Easter. It is very early this year. And I spent the first 18 or 20 years of my life, depending on how you look at it, as a Christian. And I always found Christian Holy Week which concludes with Easter, to be about the only magical and exciting time on the Christian calendar. There's something about Easter 
which just doesn't exist the rest of the year within Christianity. There, you are actually allowed to believe in a mythology and to celebrate a mythology uh, that defies the normal world. Uh, I don't know how else to put it. You know, Jesus coming back from the dead is a pretty good, pretty big deal, I would think. And yet, if you look at how many Christians celebrate Christianity day to day, it's never anything miraculous or extraordinary. And I would think that's a pretty extraordinary thing. Um, so I always liked Christianity and Easter as a kid just because of that particular fact. Uh, church was really different at Easter. We had sunrise services, so we got to go outside. We never went outside any other time of year. We often would reenact the Passion of, of Christ on Friday. Never understood exactly why they called it Good Friday. Especially because they never act like they're, you know, happy he's been sacrificed. Anyway, but we got to do that, which was always fun. You know, nothing like a bunch of, you know, teenagers dressing up in what looked like diapers and standing on platforms attached to a cross. Luckily for me, I never quite had to do that, though. My brother was once the skinniest, most ridiculous-looking Jesus <laughs> I'd ever seen. So... It really was the best week of Christianity. There's, you know, something mystical about it. You know, a lot of people like to talk about how Jesus is linked to dying and resurrecting gods in ancient paganism. And I think the case is overstated a lot, and certainly a lot of modern scholars do. When deities died in ancient paganism, they tended to stay dead. And they certainly didn't die annually and then return a few months later. So the you know matching up of Jesus as a dying and resurrecting God and comparing him to gods like Osiris is really different. When Osiris was dead, he went and he ruled the land of the dead. Pretty different than Jesus, who, you know, when he died, apparently, allegedly came back to life a few days later or whatever it is. The pagans didn't quite work like that. But, you know, no religion grows up in a vacuum. So Jesus was certainly influenced by other pagan gods that were worshipped near the time when he was starting to be worshipped. Gods like Dionysus, for instance, and probably even more importantly, the cults attached to certain Roman emperors. They shared a lot with Jesus, being that they were, you know, just normal people who ended up being deified after their death. And that was something that really only became popular with the rise of Julius Caesar and then later his adopted son, Octavian, Augustus, the second emperor of Rome. Uh, they were the first ones to really be deified by the Roman Senate officially after death. And that's just about the time when Jesus was alive. So the parallels aren't quite the same. You know, Jesus is not Tammuz or any other god, but, you know, he was influenced by what was there, and certainly his followers were. They certainly stole enough of our holidays and whatever else. Well, I think last year I was asked by a Christian podcast to give my thoughts on Easter, which was pretty weird, but they were trying to do some sort of interfaith thing. 
and somehow mistakenly stumbled upon me and thought I would be a good person to do it. And my response really surprised them because it was so positive about Easter. You know, I really enjoy Easter just as a normal person. You know, I like going into the Target down my street and seeing rabbits everywhere and seeing plastic grass, seeing all the candy, seeing all the baskets. You know, there's so little religion really left in modern day Easter celebrations. You know, last night I went down there, I was looking to find one of those ridiculous, you know, chocolate crosses that some evangelicals give their kids instead of bunnies. Or even better, it would have been nice to find a chocolate Jesus, you know, eat of eat, this is my body would have taken on a new meaning there. I was hoping to find that. I ended up not finding any of it, which was actually kind of a relief because it just goes to show you just how secular a lot of these traditions have come. And these traditions celebrate spring in our society, and we don't really have any other holidays that celebrate spring like that. If you look at the holidays that Americans celebrate on a large scale, spend a lot of money for or take holidays off for, you know, you see a lot sort of in the summer, Memorial Day and Labor Day begin and end the summer season. There's the 4th of July. There's a ton of fall holidays. You've got Halloween and you've got Thanksgiving. There's the one big winter holiday of Christmas. There's the second sort of smaller winter holidays in February. I like to think of the Super Bowl as being one of them because Americans spend a pretty good amount of money on the Super Bowl, and a lot of them watch the game, but you could also say Valentine's Day. But that's really winter for a lot of the country, so there's not really any holidays that we celebrate on a wide national scale in March, April, or even the first half of May. So Easter is pretty much all we've got when it comes to giant spring holiday in the States. I think that's a real shame. Some people might argue that President's Day counts, but unless you're looking to buy a new mattress at Mattress Warehouse, I don't think it counts. I have yet to meet anyone telling me how excited they are about President's Day this year. And for most Americans, more and more holidays don't mean shit when it comes to getting the day off of work. We seem to always be working all the time. doesn't matter if it's a Monday or a Sunday. But Easter is one of those weird holidays where you might go to a grocery store and find the store closed for whatever reason. I remember last year I had a friend who was trying to go to the mall on Easter Sunday and was horrified to find that it was closed. Probably inconvenient for her. Probably very welcome to the people who work at the mall because, you know, they end up working now on Thanksgiving Christmas Eve, all kinds of different holidays, so it's always nice to have one off. I know our local Target store is closed on Easter, and between you and me, I think it's great. Any day you can get a day off is a day uh, to celebrate, because we don't get a whole lot of them. I think my brother-in-law's coming into town this weekend, not to celebrate Easter, but uh, mostly, I won't get into it. A little, there's some family squabbles there, but you're not, you're not listening to this show to hear my family squabbles, probably.
I don't know. If you want to know, just hit me up on Facebook, and I'll tell you. So, there you go. Easter and Astara. Good times for me. You know, as a kid, I, Easter was really fun. And sometimes I like to try to bring some of those traditions into what our coven does. Easter egg hunts, baskets, all that sort of stuff. But if you're a kid and you celebrated it, I hope that you remember that it was fun. You know, the egg hunts, especially when you could do them outdoors, were always fun. The ones indoors could be also good, but often less so, especially if you couldn't find all of the real eggs. My mother would always dye eggs and then write a family member's name on each egg. So you had a grandma egg and a Jason egg, a mom egg and a dad egg. And, of course, we had a grandpa or gramps egg, which was the one egg that we could not find on Easter morning and did not find again until August when it had begun to rot. Uh, gramps was one smelly egg. You used to always get a lot of candy, not quite as much as at Halloween. Never quite got a ton of toys, but there was always a new stuffed animal in my Easter basket. And for that, I'm very grateful. So, lots of good Easter memories. I hope that you have good Easter memories, too. I, Astara, as in a pagan sense, I think is a bigger holiday because it is closer to Easter. Is it just sort of one of those Jason theories? But since I see web traffic at places like Pathios Pagan and others, I think it's based on a pretty good deal of truth. If you look at our holidays, the ones that are the most widely celebrated and written about tend to be the ones that are closest to Christian holidays. I think it's easier to get caught up in a holiday when everybody else seems to be celebrating something very similar around you. The biggest of all the pagan holidays, year in and year out, I think is certainly Halloween or Samhain, and that's because Halloween is such a big deal. Obviously, you know, today's modern Halloween has a lot to do with witches, which is a positive thing for many of us, but it's the most celebrated, I think, out of all the big eight pagan Sabbaths. The second one, though, and this has always surprised me, I think a lot of times it's Yule. And Yule was sort of a latecomer. The first witches only celebrated the greater Sabbaths, Samhain, Imbolc, Beltane, and Lamas, or Lunasad. And the equinoxes and solstices were added a little bit later. But Yule is always a really big deal for our local coven, our, our local eclectic group, not our local coven, but our local eclectic group. Our three biggest rituals every year in terms of attendance are Samhain, Yule, and Beltane, and generally in that order. Uh, so I think the proximity of Christmas and Samhain, or Christmas and Halloween to Samhain and Yule, makes them more easily celebrated. And, you know, because we're just given reminders of them all the time. It's hard to forget what's coming up when... Everything around you seems to scream your particular witch holiday. And Easter and Ostara are pretty much the same thing. Ostara and Easter, though, are really different holidays in the sense in a sense that Yule and Samhain are not really um, different holidays from... All right, I'm bumbling up my words. I'm going to back up and try to say this again. I'm so sorry. 
because usually I'm better than this. But Christmas and Yule contain a ton of the same things. A ton of the same things, and they're celebrated at about the same day. Halloween and Samhain are the same thing. And not they're not exactly the same holidays, but they're pretty close. Ostar and Easter are radically different from each other in some ways. A lot of it is because Easter is not called Easter everywhere else in the in the world. Um, Easter is a word that we use in Germanic languages. It's only really used in English and German uh, as the day of you know Christ coming back from the dead or whatever. So it's not a universally used word as such. Um, Ostara was not the name of an ancient pagan holiday. And that's something that uh, really surprises a lot of people. And it was not used to designate any particular holiday until relatively recently. Ostara, as the name of the spring equinox, was invented by a man named Aidan Kelly in the early 1970s. He lived out here in Northern California, and he was a part of a group called the New Reformed Orthodox Order of the Golden Dawn, or Narug. And while a member of Narug, he was coming up writing rituals for their Wheel of the Year, and he wanted names that sounded cool for the equinoxes and the solstices. And when you think of the equinoxes and solstices, winter solstice has to be Yule. So that one didn't take a whole lot of thinking about. And then he went to the English historian Bede. And while looking at Bede, he saw all the different names of the months that Bede used. Um, and one of the things that Bede used for a time from the middle of March to the middle of April was the word eos eostaramanath or which ends up being shortened to, uh, shortened to Easter and Bede said that the name comes from a particular goddess and eventually the name of the month was just sort of simplified to the name of one day within that month which was the Christ the Christian Easter so Bede or Caden Aiden Kelly sees this and runs with it, and he starts calling the holiday Ostara. This particular goddess also shows up in the writings of Jacob Grimm, and we all know Grimm from his fairy tales and such. And that's really where we get this modern word Ostara. We get it from Kelly, who is sort of a riff on this goddess named Eostara. And one of the things about Eostara is that she's a goddess without any mythology. You know, allegedly, she's sometimes called a goddess of eggs and bunnies. But we don't really know anything about her at all. You know, right now she exists more as an old word than an ancient relic. You know, it's easy to look at an old vase or something from ancient Greece and see a picture of a goddess or a god on it and from there infer how that particular deity was worshipped. One of the problems with the goddess Eostara is that there are no representations of her. Only things that we know about her are linguistic. 
And I think that she was probably a real goddess. I don't think that she was made up out of whole cloth. But we find out about her by going backwards just through the words. One of the things about Bede, when he writes about how the word Easter came about in the English language, is he doesn't say anything about the particular goddess Eostara other than her name. He doesn't say she's a young goddess or a spring goddess or list who she loved or what she did or where she was worshipped. He just says that she was a goddess and that there was a month named after her and eventually that month became a day and was sort of winnowed down eventually. The things about Eostara that we have, though, are a name. And there's an Indo-European root word related to Eos, which is part of Eostara, meaning glow or flame that can be connected with several different goddesses. Most of these deities are related to the dawn. And in fact, Eos does mean dawn in some language languages. In Lithuania, she was known as Osra, and in the Rig Veda, she was called Usa. The Romans knew her as Aurora, and they used this same root. And some have speculated that the goddess Bridget has her origins in this root word. So, you know, this goddess Eostar could be linked to all sorts of different deities. And the one that is the easiest to connect her to is Eos, goddess of the dawn. And when you think of a goddess of the dawn, it's certainly to imagine, easy to imagine a maiden-like figure. But the Greek Eos is a bit more complicated that, than that. She certainly wasn't a maiden goddess in that traditional sense that we use today. She had two children. She was a lover of Ares. And Aphrodite cursed her with an unquenchable sexual thirst since Aphrodite was jealous of Eo sleeping with uh, one of her favorite lovers, Ares. You know, you could infer from that, perhaps, that Eostara is related to fertility, because Eos seems to be laid, related to fertility and sex. The most likely, though, of the historical Eostaras is a localized goddess worshipped by the Anglo-Saxons in present-day Kent in southeastern England. It's in Kent where we see the oldest references to names similar to that of Eostara. There's one that appears in 788 of the Common Era, Estrogen, and it's been argued that she was perhaps a Germanic matron goddess. There was a really great book that came out just a couple of years ago called Pagan Goddesses in the Early Germanic World by a linguist named Philip Shaw, and he links Eostara to a German goddess named Ostriana, who was a matron goddess connected to the East. What's really surprising about this is that Shaw downplays the connection to dawn, you know, found in the Greek Eos, and focuses on linguistic evidence that links that German goddess to Eostara and links them to the sun rising in the East. What's really another interesting thing about matron goddesses in Germany was that they were often worshipped in triplicate. Now, this doesn't mean that they were worshipped as maiden mother crone. A triple goddess, as we think about it today, isn't really quite the same as the triple goddess of the ancient world. Sometimes goddesses were shown in twos, threes, 
or in the case of Aphrodite, I think as many as eights, to show off their various attributes. It's hard to illustrate an idea like uh, love or comfort and so that they do is they draw a bunch of different goddesses and then give them all a name and then link them to that one main goddess that most people would be uh, referring to. So Eostar, if she was imagined in triplicate, those triple forms could have meant all kinds of things. Obviously, if she was a goddess of the sun rising, uh, you know, they could have connected her to that. Might have been a way to connect her to the east in that direction. If she was connected to the Greek Eos, one of those triple forms might be a way to connect her to sex. Doesn't everybody love sex and connecting to that? So she's a really difficult goddess because we don't have any of that archaeological evidence. All we have are names that we can see in certain places. But I will say that one of the things about her over the years is anyone I know who has called Eostara in ritual has experienced mostly the same goddess over those years. Just two years ago, my coven did a big Ostara ritual. And Ostara for us is a really different ritual because it's one of the only two each year we allow outside people to visit the coven. So we want to make sure we have a, a really good ritual. On that particular year, we decided we were going to do a drawing down the moon. And I was going to have my wife draw down Eostara for the holiday. You know, I decided I was going to have, because, you know, I have such power over her, which I do not. But she seemed to think it was a fine idea to draw down Eostar for this ritual. So we did the drawing down. And, you know, when my wife draws down the goddess, there's always sort of this change in her. So I watched that change come about. And all of a sudden, my wife was acting like a 10-year-old girl. Her mannerisms had completely changed. The inflections in her voice had completely changed. Everything was different. And we thought it was the goddess, Eostara, um, there. And you could feel his power in her when she was walking around the circle. You know, it wasn't as strong as some other goddesses we've invited into circle, but it was very much there. And... You know, as she walked around, you know, she's radiating this energy and this this younger childlike sort of energy and all of us immediately picked up on it during the ritual and it affects you, you know, it makes you more childlike and fun. So we finish the ritual and my wife comes back and she apologizes. She goes, Well, I'm sorry that didn't work and the drawing down didn't, you know, happen and we kind of failed and we were all like, What are you talking about? That was awesome really happened. That was great. Uh, that was a really intense and amazing experience for us, ritual-wise. And I was talking to one of my friends who was a, a guest for that particular ritual, who's a heathen and works with Anglo-Saxon deities quite a bit. And she told me at their own ritual, they had called to Eostara. And the Eostara that we got in our circle was exactly like the Eostara, they got in their circle, which I thought was more evidence that there is a goddess named Eostara, and perhaps she's not quite the same goddess that existed 
1,300 years ago in Kent County, but I think, or yeah, County Kent, got to do it the English pronunciation, the English way of ordering the words County Kent, but that she was very real and very much around and a part of our modern pagan things. So yeah, um, if anyone tells you that she's not a real goddess, they are completely wrong because I think there's enough evidence now to suggest that she was. And I still see that on some Christian websites every once in a while. But one of the things about this particular goddess is, Eostar, is that she's not related to Easter. It's just that she had a particular month named after her, and it has nothing to do with that particular Christian holiday. When it comes to goddesses, especially at this time of year, you hear about somebody else an awful lot, an awful lot, in addition to Eostara. And on the surface, it sounds like a pretty reasonable thing. And I've seen a little bit less of it this year, which makes me really happy. But for the last two years before that, I saw a little meme on Facebook and other forms of social media all the time that shows a picture of the goddess Ishtar. And the little meme says, this is Ishtar, pronounced Easter. Easter was originally the celebration of Ishtar, the Assyrian and Babylonian goddess of fertility and sex. Her symbols, like the egg and the bunny, were and still are fertility and sex symbols. After Constantine decided to Christianize the empire, Easter was changed to represent Jesus. But at its roots, at its roots Easter, which is how you pronounce Ishtar, is all about celebrating fertility and sex. Now, I don't have any problem with pointing out things in Christianity that are pagan. And I think it's great, and it shows just how religions bump into each other and how different religions influence one another. But Ishtar and Easter share nothing in common. This is one of the dumbest things I have ever read and seen associated with paganism. And let me tell you why. For a couple of reasons. First of all, Ishtar was not pronounced Easter. That is also false. But the biggest problem is Easter is a word we only use in Germanic languages like English as the name of the resurrection day of Jesus. Easter is not something used in Greece and other parts of the world. And we didn't use the word Easter for that day until the 8th century. So it's a big problem. There's no way Constantine could have changed the name of the Christian holiday to Easter in honor of Ishtar or any other such nonsense. There's a huge gap there. We're talking about a 500-year gap from Constantine to the use of Easter as the name of Christ's, Jesus's alleged resurrection day. So that doesn't work. And throughout much of the world, Easter is known as Pascal, or in relation to the Jewish Passover. They just don't call it Easter. So this is a really, really, really stupid thing. Mercifully, though, and this makes me really happy, the whole Easter was named after Ishtar nonsense didn't even come from the pagan community. And certainly, there are times when we love to go out of our way and some people love to present false information, but this particular meme came from an atheist group, and it really is dishonest. There's just nothing in it there. 
Ishtar was also not associated with rabbits and her eggs. Like Jesus, she did visit the underworld, um, but there's really no other relations between the two. She was a goddess of sex and fertility, which the meme does get right, but she also had associations with war, which is something Christianity and Jesus are not supposed to have, though many of his followers seem very confused by that. You know, the distances, the geography's all wrong. Everything about that meme is wrong. If you see anybody sharing that, please let them know that they can do better. Now, some of the other things that we like to associate with Easter are kind of pagan, maybe. I think the eggs are. Pretty sure the eggs are. But the eggs are also very, very complicated because an egg is a very common thing. So you can see it in all kinds of places. You know, human beings have been eating eggs since there were first human beings over 100,000 years ago. So before we were recording history, we were using eggs, and we were eating them, and we were probably using the shells for all kinds of things. Ancient pagans decorated eggs and gave them spiritual meaning. There were gods that were literally hatched out of eggs, showing them symbols to be, uh, showing the eggs to be symbols of birth and new life. Eggs were decorated and shared as a form of congratulations under the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius in the second century. According to legend, a hen laid a speckled red egg on the day of his birth, a prophecy that the infant would one day become an emperor. But even then, before him, people were passing out eggs. So it's a very, very old tradition. Christians may have picked up on the custom because of the common use of passing around eggs in the second century. But there are other possibilities. In the Middle Ages, Catholic priests were given eggs as an offering and a form of payment for services rendered, especially around the Easter holiday. And people would give those priests eggs in baskets. That's a pretty probable spot for maybe where eggs came up. In Russia, Orthodox priests gave colored eggs as gifts Later, the custom was picked up by the royal family in the country, and then everybody else. In the 17th century, English children begged for eggs at Easter, and most likely carried baskets while doing so. Of course, English children begged for food at every Christian holiday back then, so it's not really all that unique to a Christian holiday in England in the 17th century. You know, eggs have nothing to do with Jesus, but eggs are also so damned common, it's impossible to say with any certainty when and why they became linked to Easter. However, for a pagan to use an egg at Astara, regardless of when Christians began to pick up on the tradition, uh, makes a lot of sense because pagan cultures have always used eggs. And if you read the uh, Orphic if you read anything from like the Orphic religion, the initiatory tradition of the Orphics in the late first uh, the late first century, you'll see often that they used eggs to uh, represent gods and the coming of the world and a world egg. So there's all kinds of pagan symbolism with eggs, and I think that's great. I know in our coven we use them often around this time of year, and no one's ever upset that they're there. But we're not sure exactly when the tradition was sort of attached to Easter. I did have a college professor once who liked to say that 
eggs represented Jesus breaking out of the cave. And I told him flat out how stupid I thought that was. He still gave me an A that semester, but he didn't seem particularly happy that I called him out for that particular thing. One of the other bits of lore that we often get this time of year is that the Easter Bunny is an ancient pagan icon, that it's somehow related to Germanic paganism. And I will say that the Easter Bunny is certainly one of those things that certainly feels pagan. And it makes sense that it would be a pagan custom, but it's really hard to conclusively say that the Easter Bunny is pagan. Now, if you look at paganism to mean anything having to do with the natural world, and there's a whole host of religious traditions that we would not say are ancient pagan religions or come from ancient pagan religions, but just feel very attached to natural rhythms and natural cycles. And I think because of that are kind of pagan. So maybe the Easter Bunny is one of those. Because the Easter Bunny doesn't show up in the written record until the 1600s. Uh, his first appearances are in Germany, where he's called Osterhaus or Osterhaus. And he shows up in the early 1600s and he's already passing out eggs and hopping around to the, the houses of all kinds of little German children. One of the problems with saying that he's kind of an ancient pagan tradition is you'd think that we would have something earlier than that if that were the case. But we don't, so it's really, really hard to say. Usually you can really trace the origins of a holiday icon, like Santa. There's a, there's a pretty clear beginning point and then there's a pretty clear ending point on when he became the Santa Claus we all know today. With the Easter Bunny, it's just not very clear. And there were also other gift-giving animals in Germany. And some of them were really popular up until the early part of the 20th century. One of those you might have seen, and this has been a popular blog post in the pagan world for the last two years, is somebody writing about the Easter fox. Again, it's something that could be an ancient pagan thing, or it could be something relatively modern. We're just not sure. It's so so strange, and the jury is still out on so many of these things. Sad family story. My dad once dressed up as the Easter Bunny at a department store and had kids sit on his lap with him being the Easter Bunny. Uh, he was... I don't know, I thought there's nothing to be ashamed of, but he never really likes to talk about it. I wonder, you know, if something awful happened to him, you know, like a child crying or pooping on his lap or something. That's neither here nor there. But yeah, we'll we'll never know for sure about the Easter Bunny. So there's really not much left after bunnies and eggs, right? Maybe, you know, yeah, that's pretty much it when it comes to sort of big Easter myths and Easter stories. You got Eos Star down, got Ishtar down. Yeah, there's not really a whole lot after that. I guess there could also be hot cross buns. One of my friends that I play trivia with from the UK was telling me how it's traditional in England to eat hot cross buns every Easter, you know, before right after church service. For them, and there are a lot of pagans who also do hot cross buns. I usually do them around Astara every year, 
And if you've never had a hot cross bun, it's a big yeasty piece of sweet bread. And, you know, you make it just by taking some flour and some yeast and some sugar and mixing them up and watching everything get bigger as the yeast eats the sugar and all that other crap. And then you bake them and they're pretty hollow. In Christian traditions, they usually put a cross on them, across the hot cross bun with a knife, and then usually a little bit of icing. Some places will put stuff in the hot cross buns, like raisins or dates. My wife and I think that's pretty gross, and we usually serve them plain with just a little bit of icing on top. We also put the Celtic cross on top of the hot cross buns that we make for our pagan coven, but we do it as a way of, you know, the wheel of the year, sabbaty kind of thing, not really Christian. But that's one of those kind of rare examples where a tradition that is very Christian ended up in some pagan and Wiccan circles. And some of that's just because of the way people thought in the 19th century when people were trying to figure out where everything came from. It was really common to just claim that everything was a pagan relic, even when it isn't or wasn't. And I think that's kind of what happened with hot cross buns. But who cares where they came from? They're good. And there is a tradition uh, with hot cross buns. So if you want to play the game with hot cross buns, you share a bun between two people. And the two people pull the hot cross bun apart while saying this rhyme. Half for you and half for me, between us two shall good will be. And you don't really win anything if you get the biggest half of the hot cross bun, unless, of course, you just like hot cross bun. But the idea of sharing the bun is it's supposed to represent friendship and goodwill. And when this little ceremonial act is done, it's supposed to ensure that those feelings will last the rest of the year. This, I think, lends some credence to the idea that it could be pagan, but there are legends that say that the two people sharing the bun should kiss before eating it, which sounds like a good way to celebrate things for me. Anytime we get a little kissing involved, I'm down with that. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much all the big Easter O-Star things. The sad thing is it's still got like 10 minutes of show to fill, and I hate not filling up the show. And you're like, what else do you talk about on the show? I've talked about Paganicon a little bit. I'm really tired of Convocation and Pantheicon and other festivals. I will talk a little bit before we go about something that seems to be out there, in, especially in the blogosphere a lot. And I don't know where this came from necessarily, but it feels lately that there are more and more people who are trying to tell others exactly what's right or wrong within our pagan traditions. And not just within specific traditions, but in a general sense, like there's a one right way to believe or one right way to do things. Sometimes you see people who I like to think of as gatekeepers because they're saying you can't worship a particular deity without doing this and you can't, you know, be a part of a particular tradition without doing that. And it just really rubs me the wrong way. Certainly our words have to have meaning. You know, there has to be something uh, that makes a witch. But what exactly that something is, it's really hard to determine. People have been self-identifying as witches now for almost 100 years for a variety of reasons. 
The first person that we know who really identified as a witch was Gerald Gardner, who came out in the early 1950s. And he came out as a witch, and he brought a religious tradition with him, with him that we often call Wicca today. Even people who follow the teachings and practices of Gardner would never say that they're the only witches around. They're just one type of witch. You know, for me, anybody is a witch who does spells, uh, maybe creates some sort of magical container while doing those spells, and self-identifies as a witch. I've read lots of different books on what today some people call traditional witchcraft, which I don't think is any older than Gardneria and Wicca. And, you know, they do a lot of the same things that I, the Gardnerian Wiccan, do in the circle. Uh, they're certainly still witches, just as much as I am. I know some of them have said, oh, you're a Wiccan and not a witch. And it is kind of crappy sometimes to hear Wicca and witch used as synonyms, but that's how Gardner used them, and he was the first public witch. So I think sometimes they can be used as synonyms, but that does not mean that Wicca is the only type of witchcraft. You know, if you think you're doing witchcraft, you're probably doing witchcraft. I'm not going to tell you you're not. Now, if you're saying that you're doing Alexandrian Wicca or something, and you're not following Alexander's book, and you weren't part of, uh, initiated into a tradition, or a coven that does Alexandrian Wicca, then you're not an Alexandrian uh, witch, or you're not an Alexandrian Wiccan. But that's something else entirely. Certainly we have to kind of police our more specific traditions, but in the more general pagan world, nah, I think not. A lot of this really comes down to this growing divide between polytheists and pagans. And as a pagan, as a pagan witch, I've always thought of myself as a polytheist. Polytheism just means belief in more than one deity believe in more than one goddess or god. There are no other qualifications on it. You know, there are many different types of polytheistic religion, and if somebody says that they identify more than one god or goddess in their own practice, I'm cool with them being polytheists. That's pretty much all it is. And I don't think that paganism is necessarily always polytheist either. I mean, I've met atheist pagans before who are just as pagan as thou. Uh, you hear sometimes the term archetypal pagan where they, you know, look at these sort of big ideas and try to honor those big ideas in the circle. That's fine. Margot Adler, who wrote Drawing Down the Moon, uh, thought of herself kind of as an archetypalist pagan. Who cares? I mean, nobody's threatening my beliefs or your beliefs with any of this stuff. Really, the ones who get bent out of shape about some of it, I just, just don't get. Life's too short. Enjoy the practice. Enjoy the doing. You know, be the best pagan that you can be. Be the best polytheist that you can be. Be the best witch that you could possibly be. And stop worrying so much about what's going on in the backyard. You know, I, when I was a baby pagan, one of the things that I really liked about paganism in a really broad sense was I felt connection with a whole bunch of people, even if they didn't practice precisely the same tradition that I did. Maybe this was part of growing up in a smaller pagan area in Michigan, but in my extended circle that I did rituals with, you know, at at least a couple of Sabbaths a year, 
we had people who identified as Wiccans, witches, heathens, ceremonial magicians, members of the OTO, druids. It was a big, wide, and diverse group of people. And we knew that we didn't all believe exactly the same things, but what we did was we honored and acknowledged the things that other people believed in the circle. No one said, hey, hey, asshole, you're wrong. It has to be this way, or you have to believe in such and such a manner. We all let people you know, have their own spirituality and their own way of doing things. And to me, that's always been the the kind of big selling point of a lot of this is, you know, we'll kind of acknowledge each other's reality. As long as, you know, nobody's telling you to steal or do something illegal, you know, it's all good in the circle. And you don't have to believe what I do. You don't even have to like it, but you should be respectful. You should be honorable. You shouldn't like, you know, snort at me during a ritual or something. And I promise I won't snort at you. You know, let's just be nice to each other. Hopefully we can get back to that. You know, that's the great thing about paganism, I think, should be the doing sometimes and not the arguing. And there are so many people who seem to think that the arguing is the best thing. And, geez, I really hope not. That doesn't bode well for our future. As always, I want to thank Witch School for letting me do this show and letting me ramble for an hour twice a month. It's always great. So, again, thanks to Witch School. Thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next time. I hope you had a fabulous Ostara. And I hope the bunny, whether he comes from our tradition or theirs, paid a visit to your house. We'll see you next time. Good night. The bro witch. He's so he, – I always – I think of the um, Bill and Ted and be excellent to each other when he says that stuff. It's, he's right. We should all – we're at least respect the way that other people uh, feel. Okay. It's me. It's Pam. And it's the porch. We're all pretty laid back here. I've got Gabby and I always say her name, Gabby. I always say it German because I lived in Germany. So Gabby and uh, Kari on the line about ready to come on. And we'll talk about um, Kari, what Kari is doing. Diana Pax will be on later. Uh, it's time for the porch, but you know what? I'm going to go ahead and play Kari's tune that she sent me because it is perfect for the beginning of the show. This is Kama Ala. Kama Ala. Ready? Yeah. Left together. Left together. Left together. Kama Kama Ala. Ala singen
end of it, Corey. That's good stuff. Come ala, uh, which which means you know everybody come, right? Yeah. Yep. That's right. It's the song yeah, that we'll be using. It's the go song ahead, that you'll ahead. be we'll be using the uh, that song for the beginning of the opening ritual at Kaganicon. Awesome! Awesome! I'm what, excited. Uh, I love it. <laughs> Paganicon is this weekend. I, I know you're, you're, you know, I, I thank you for taking a little bit of time uh, out of your, your busy getting ready for it schedule um, to, to be back on the show again so we can focus more on, on, on you. And Diana will be on, Paxson will be on a little bit later so we can talk about what you and her will do. Uh, and then, again, at the very end, we'll just focus a little bit more on Diana. And and I mentioned in an email to you, so I'm letting everybody know, mm-hmm. if at any time, uh, you know, after we're, we're done uh, focusing on you, if you want to stick around, you are welcome to. If you want to say goodbye and bail, it's pretty pretty <laughs> laid back here. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's bail. nice. Yeah, bail. Yeah, hey, I'm bailing. Um, but it's it's I'm really excited about this because Gabby and I were talking earlier today, like a marathon phone call that was only supposed to be a couple Two minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, one of the things it was, and 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 Pamit's ADD like really came on strong with hey this tangent, hey that tangent, and we were talking about my father sent me. A uh, 23andMe uh, thing that my my brother had done, you know. So we're looking. I was looking at my ancestry, and mm-hmm. we were talking about the draw of of you know ancestry to to your beliefs. And uh, Gabby, I'm going to let you go ahead and take over because you were talking about specifically about growing up here on the East Coast and how it's you know uh, predominantly. Yeah. Well, and there's a well, and if you think about the immigration patterns, I mean, yes. So my background is cultural anthropology, linguistic systems. So I'm a junkie for all things like that. And actually, when you pronounced my name, Gabi, I was like, oh, because my mother, my brother and my sister's first language was German because she was in the Women's Army Air Corps, which is now the Air Force. So yeah. she, was stationed, she was stationed over there. Um, And it was my brother and my sister's first language. And so I heard my name pronounced that way, as well as my father's Sicilian side of the family, which is, you know, Gabriella. And so when Uh. you said it, I I got goosebumply because when you're from an immigrant part of the country, there's a steeping like tea that happens, a sauna, if you will, um, where it's an immersion process and it's a gift back to you. So, of course, I knew about the parts of the family that were retold and part of the oral tradition and the storytelling and the songs. And along the East Coast, you have this influx of Scots-Irish, Germanic migration. And then in New England specifically, there's everybody else from the Mediterranean and from Ireland and Scotland and, you know. And so I was talking... Hi, Kari. Hey. I didn't want to leave you out of the conversation, but it's a long-winded question. But there's a kind of jealousy or an envy, really, that happens with folks who grow up in a very immersive 
family situation where there is a direct contact to a family member that speaks some Germanic or Nordic language. There is a element, you know, there's something Nordic up with us, but what even is that? And so this surge of Ancestry.com and 23andMe, I hope I don't have to pay them royalties for saying those things, but there's something that they are giving back to us that we are kind of conflicted about um, owning it, exploring it, wearing it, singing it. And it's an East Coast thing to kind of look at what, what you are doing, Kari, and the way that you are vulva to your community and the way that Diana is, you know, serving her community. And it's like, damn, I really wish I could live there and feel what that's like. And I'm sure that it would be the same if you and Diana were to drop into an Irish neighborhood in South Boston. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's a, it's a whole different experience. And so I guess I wanted to, to start the conversation off with, do you really know what you are giving us, Kari, when you sing? It is huge. And that's a long-winded thank you to kick us off. <laughs> Well, thanks a lot, you know, um, for that. And, you know, I, I know I, I, I understand your, your question and I understand why it, it needed a lot of context and framing um, because in my, um, I, don't, I don't know that Diana has any of the same kinds of experiences as I do growing up right. in an ethnic enclave. So I, I don't think that, I can't speak, for her in fact i i said you know her tradition is very very different than mine sure. um than what what we've developed in the midwest i said it's as different as as you know from minneapolis to to berkeley as it as it is from oslo to athens and my friend sure. got on got on her google maps and she goes there's only 20 miles difference between those <laughs> the two <laughs> like so it really is different. you know yeah um but but um I couldn't do the work that I'm doing if I if it hadn't been um, developed in the ethnic enclave that I grew up in. Right, right. And it would have it would be impossible for me to do the work in the authentic way um, anywhere else. In you know I I live um, you know about three miles away from the Danish American center. And I go right. there continually to, um, to their uh, historical costuming group and, and study fabric um, and textile right. uh, historical textiles there. There's every, every day of the week I can dance either Norwegian, Swedish, Finnish, or Danish dancing. Right. You know, so for me, what happened was, you know, I, I my, my Norwegian, uh, my Norwegian Lutheran heritage that I grew up in, we sang hymns and prayers in Norwegian, but we weren't right. um, immersed in any of the folk culture. I mean, other than the, the foods and, and those kinds of things. Um, but there was no no dancing in in our we were uh, strict church kind of uh, Norwegian, so mm-hmm. no dancing. So then I went um, as an undergraduate 
at uh, St. Thomas University, I had a linguistics class, and I got mm-hmm. to in 89 and I got to study the pre-Christian um, heritage mm-hmm. of my own, my own heritage. And, and so what I, what I have found is that the traditional folk music and dance community is the meeting ground for mm-hmm. these two seemingly disparate mm-hmm. um, places in my Urlog or my heritage, um, mm-hmm. and it's because of that community that I can come to to fruition mm-hmm. and have something to really give um, the broader community. And so, while I when I travel, I understand how unique it is, um, mm-hmm. but when I'm home, it doesn't feel as unique as all that. <laughs> well, well and, right. and that's because. Right. That's because it is so steeped in in that that you know the the tradition that we were talking about the north and I think you and I talked about this two weeks ago about how mm-hmm. growing up in that part of the country you have so much of the the Nordic um, traditions and and people you know the the uh, I'm trying to think of the jokes the Olaf jokes and stuff like that and people right the, yeah. Uh, it's it's very commonplace. I I I have to to change our little schedule up a little bit because Diana is not going to be able to be available for the time that I I asked her to because I I missed I missed a message from her. My my bad. Um, so I'm bringing yeah. her. <laughs> I'm bringing her on now because because I, I'd like to talk about this and, and slide into Paganicon because it is like a it's going to be what is the, the theme again for Paganicon this weekend? It's something to do with Vikings it's, or um, fire and ice. Well, it's fire and fire ice. Fire and ice. Fire and ice. The two Welcome, uh, major elements of creation in Norse mythology and and um, of course extremely important. Um, Concepts living in Minnesota, where we live on ice half the year. <laughs> you know. So, well, California ha- seems to have fire half the year. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, yeah, that's fire been a pretty intense <laughs> thing out there. It's, it's funny because I've lived, you know, born and raised in in New England, so extreme ice and okay. snow and blizzards. And then I also lived in um, the Chico, California area for three years, and I taught some classes at Cal State Chico where everything was brown, everything was parched. I was like, does it rain? They said yes for the month of January, and that was it. So it's mm-hmm. like, ooh, how, yes. do I, how do I, yeah, how do I trigger my seasons? How do I trigger my rituals? How well, do it's I a trigger... little better than that usually. For for the month of January, for the entire month of January. Yeah, true. We had some rain then. I was cutting the grass in shorts on New Year's Day in California. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Paganicon, it's a new, it's a newer. I guess this is its sixth year. Is that right? I think so. Uh, probably something like that. Five or six years. Six or eight. Yeah, something around there. Yeah. They they and we've had a really good relationship with them here on Pagans Tonight. With uh, Selena is one of their guests of honor, and she's a host here on Pagans Tonight. So she set up the first uh, us being able to talk to the guests, and and they've had some amazing guests. And this this year's not a not uh, 
it, it's also another amazing year, and I like the theme of fire and ice. But but when I had mm-hmm. you on two weeks ago, we we weren't able to talk specifically on the the different um, what specifically you Kari and Diana are doing there at Paganicon. I mean, we talked a little bit about what, who Kari is and who Diana is. But uh, I didn't get a chance to, to talk about some of the, the amazing things that you'll be doing there. Um, we played uh, we played uh, Kama'ala at the beginning, which is like the opening, um, what you, you said, Kari, that you're going to do with the opening ritual. Um, mm-hmm. Can, are you and, are Kari and Diane, are you guys doing some stuff together then at Paganacom? No, um, we are scheduled so that we can attend one another's things. <laughs> That's a smart plan. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nice to um, be able to, um, you know, we don't, we don't get a chance to get together a lot. Uh, so we're, we're, I'm really excited to um, have Diana see what we're doing and to have my Volvasov Guild members um, actually, some of my Volvistav Guild members will be um, helping Diana with her oracular save um, ritual. So that's something maybe I, Diana can speak to. Well, yes, I'm really looking have... forward to that. I'm sorry. I just wanted to back up because we were already going into a great segue and I missed it. I'm so sorry because we're talking about the weather. And Diana, you're doing a... a... Uh, the heathen response to climate change. Yes, yes. Right? Uh, on Friday, on Friday, I believe. Um, it's uh, called Staving Off Ragnarok. And, wow. Um, <laughs> well, subtle, very subtle. It, it, it's, it, the the <laughs> essence of it is, you know, when you, when you look at a lot of uh, cultures, there's a concept of different successive ages of the world. You know, and if you look at geology, you get the same thing, except they're supposed to be really, really long ages. And uh, my theory is that one of the reasons that the Norse gods have been so uh, actively recruiting in the past mm-hmm. few mm-hmm. years is that, that they would really like the current age of the world to go on for as long as it's supposed to. And, mm-hmm. and the current, the Holocene is the age in which our current ecosystem evolved and which our current cultures and our current religious systems all evolved. Mm-hmm. So we all go down together if this age ends before its appointed time. So uh, that's basically the, what really gave rise to it was uh, we had a number of years ago, we had a, a wildfire right in the hills behind my house. And mm-hmm. in fact, we had to evacuate my house. And mm-hmm. watching the footage, when when the flames were sucked down the canyon, mm-hmm. uh, they were just huge, and you could see see the fire giants in them. Mm-hmm. And it looked like and a the sound. And, and the, the sound the, of the, that. Yeah, the, the giants are the natural forces. And right. most of the time, they're good. But when they get unbalanced... Then you're in trouble, and I interpret Ragnarok as when the only uh, natural forces left are unbalanced. Right. I have a question for you both. Since you're, I'm, I'm trying to fit in my head the concept of a pagan conference. Some part of that feels intrinsically oxymoronic to me because 
there's there's a thing about you know behaving at these things, and I love those kind of academic. Do, is there a balance between a gathering and academia that can happen in a Piganicon? Because I've not attended one yet. Um, but I wanted to know, is there a balance between the ancestral art forms and the activism that happens differently at Paganicon? Um, I, think I don't know. I need to, yeah, I would need to ask you exactly what you mean by the activism piece. Um, just the conference, I mean, the, the you know, staving off Ragnarok, it's, it, it, that's going to be a, a heated discussion and there's going to be lots of thoughts and lots of exchange and a well, huge so. amount of them. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say Diana's going to do something on political magic too. That's one of the things that you're doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. So is there and that's right up my alley. Because that's Go looking ahead, forward into the future and the ancestral arts is bringing legacy and heritage into the now. So there's this whole Nornian thing happening, but is I'm just wondering about the the format. How does that happen at Paganicon? What what can people expect to see there, and how are your parts different? I guess I don't know about Paganicon because it's my first time, but I've been going okay. to Panseacon in California mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. since since it was instituted about 20 years ago now, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a little bit of everything. Uh, mm-hmm. There there's there's um, wild uh, rituals and quiet rituals and talks and papers and uh, p- people choose the best mix for their interests. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, I one of our guests the same. Go ahead. I would I would say that that's the same uh, kind of thing at Paganicon, except for that it's. Um, smaller, it's uh, it's intimate. It has a lot of um, um, pe- local people who are doing um, you know local works. Uh, one of the things that they have been trying to get more of uh, in in to the pagan community here are um, are people with a cultural base. Um, ancestral traditions, and that's been a difficult um, sell. It's a difficult piece because um, most uh, many pagans, um, you know, think about their traditions as religious or spiritual traditions that may or may mm-hmm. not have anything to do with their family of origin. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And most of the people who work in family of origin traditions don't usually call it a religion. <laughs> so it's, mm-hmm. it's a, um, mm-hmm. we're, we've been working really hard to bridge those to bridge those communities, but it's even very difficult in the heathen community um, mm-hmm. because heathens don't identify as pagan, and they generally are family-based traditions. And so they don't mm-hmm. think about uh, going to a conference where there's a, a variety of, of uh, people presenting on a variety of different traditions as something that would be beneficial to their family-based uh, tradition. So mm-hmm. 
um, it's something that we have, we have, um, we work on. Uh, it's, I don't, uh, uh, I think, I think it's something that, that will be really prominent this year just because mm-hmm. thematically um, it calls into, um, it calls into more family based traditions this, this, uh, this Better, year. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and I, I ones that resonate with Minnesotans. Go ahead. What I was going to say is I don't have it on the program for Paganicon this year because I'm still working on a presentation that I hope to do at the Parliament of World Religions uh, next fall <laughs> uh, called Balancing on the Rainbow Bridge, which wow. is trying to figure out exactly what Carrie is talking about. How do we balance mm-hmm. the fact that on the one hand, a lot of the people who come to heathenry uh, are doing so because they have some kind of Germanic heritage, and very often right. they're trying to avoid misappropriating somebody else's culture. Right. On the other hand, uh, I have plenty of experience over the past 30 years of people being drawn to uh, work with the Norse gods who have no uh, Germanic ancestry or not very mm-hmm. much. So mm-hmm. when I look at history, though, I see first the the Germanic peoples moved around a lot. And Mm -hmm. second, they were adoptive. If you moved Mm -hmm. with the tribe, if you stood in the battle line with the tribe, you were part of the tribe. Right. So I think that there's a way uh, that when people's souls are aligned with a certain tradition, that they can be adopted into it. Oh, absolutely. There's absolutely no problem with, with, um, you know, um, what we would call eight or beard, you know, the, the family of family of origin to adoption Mm -hmm. and oath and that kind of thing. Um, in Minnesota, I, I, we have a very, uh, diverse, um, heathen, uh, community here. And I think, so I think, you know, one of the, one of the tricky pieces is, um, is, is, is separating out those who are going towards Norse traditional um, deity and uh, culture and spiritual tradition um, from those who are even even though they may have heritage in it are are still co-opting Norse tradition itself for mm-hmm. white supremacy. Mm-hmm. That's a really tricky piece. And that's one that mm-hmm. we're working yeah. with a lot, especially in our mm-hmm. prison system here. We mm-hmm. do a lot of work in Osatu uh, and, and heathenry in the prison system to make sure that we are moving um, people into a, 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 a rooted connection to culture yeah. rather mm-hmm. than um, race. So we're moving from race to culture and we're moving from religion to uh, spiritual way or folk folk spiritual pathway. Um, hey, hey, Gabby, so yeah. she's talking about one of the the ideas of a show show that we're we were talking about doing was working with the prisons and and how important yeah. that is for heathenry. So I'm just saying, yeah. sorry, I think a lot of us are on that that same that that understanding. Um, yeah. I think. I think yeah, there's a I've lot been of doing some prison work too. Mhm. 
there's a lot of concern with with that the mixture of of the fantastic of the fantasy um you know and and getting away from that you know like the mm-hmm. vikings with the horn helmets and and you know the, the <laughs> right yeah how do you exactly so and you know one of the things that we're talking about the having that family of origin connection um i've noticed you know, because I've been military and I've grown grown up and moved around a lot, a lot of places. Um, sometimes you're called because of a place, or sometimes mm-hmm. you just have um, maybe a spirit guide, that, or, or for lack of a better word, a spirit guide that's saying that's drawing you to that. So you, you it's a it's a call that may not have that blood connection, or may not have yeah. that. Um, Mm-hmm. That's right. That, That's right. But it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but it. Uh, but it doesn't um, excuse anyone from working on their family of origin shit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Your Orlog. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. You don't have to have. You don't have to be <laughs> from Norway, but you have to work on your family of origin issues because that yeah. is your inherited cultural grief, your inherited mm-hmm. uh, values come through there. It's the first thing a doctor asks, you know, what who in your family has high blood pressure or heart attacks or whatever. You you have to still still deal with that piece. And I think that that right. has been one of the one of the vexing pieces about um yeah. modern heathenry has been that people want to skip that piece and dive sure. right into some deep uh deep ancestor Oh, my great ancestor. Well, your great ancestor who? You know, right. go home and talk to your mom is my <laughs> my my biggest advice, you know. Yeah. Figure out what your Orlog is carrying and that's what you have to heal and that's what you have to bring to the table. So I Yeah. Um you know. So whether somebody is is from Germanic culture or from Mediterranean culture or whatever Everyone should, needs to deal with that piece mm-hmm. if yeah, you want to follow very the season practice, mm-hmm. and if you want to just be a good person in general. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. Work on your <laughs> being heathen doesn't tell us who we have to work with; it tells us how. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. See, and I, you just yeah. taught me something that I didn't didn't know, is I always thought of heathen under the same umbrella as pagan, but heathens don't consider themselves pagan. Can you explain a lot of them that? Don't. Some of us do. Okay. Well, it's a mixed pagan, bag. Yeah, and pagan is a you know Norse pagan is a, a convenient term to use for for everyone to understand, and heathen still has a lot of. Um, you know, negative energy around it in in uh, the overculture, um, but it but we here in the Midwest have been very diligent about using Old Norse words and terminology to describe ourselves and to try and stay away from outsider descriptions. So there are some who won't even call themselves a German because that was a Roman imp- imposed outsider mm-hmm. identification. Uh, I ha- we have within the Celtic community too that people don't call themselves Celtic um, because that was a Roman term uh, in mm-hmm. order to categorize and tax us. And mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. 
Um, right. so for convenience well, we, sake, you know, we tend we tend to think of of of, of peoples in a modern context of of you know the borders that we have drawn on the maps today, but that's not especially when you talk about Germany. Um, mm-hmm. Germany wasn't Germany until like the eighteen seventeen eighteen hundreds. Right. So, well, same yeah. with Norway. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's that's where a lot of people are like, okay, are you Norse? Are you Dutch? Are you German? Are you Swedish? Are you yeah, Scandinavian? Oh, one of what, the other I'd things like that was. I'd like to ask Diana, what is it? Because then you and I, Tammy, can share what it is on the East Coast, or at least, you know, the Southeast, and I can speak to the Northeast as to what terminology folk are using, the folk are using, and. I guess I the Midwest. I mean, it's an it's an incubator, and I'm again, like I said before, I'm envious that 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 immersion. You know, I love. I would have loved to have seen that, but I have my own delicious history to pull from. But I'd like to hear from Diana about the West Coast mm-hmm. terminology. I guess the identity, the words that people use to wrap consciousness around what heathenry means. Um, out there, well, coastal differences, regional differences. Uh, they, to some extent, things are a little different out there on the frontier. Uh, <laughs> we've always been very, very multicultural, uh, and certainly most of the people I know uh, came out of more general paganism. And uh, when I look at it linguistically, uh, pagan is the romance term and heathen is the Germanic term. Uh, They both mean the people out there in the sticks that were still doing the old ways when the city folk turned Christian. Rural folk, yeah. In fact, I like the term heathen because it's uh, very old uh, and it was originally uh, used as a translation for Gentile uh, when Mm. Ophelus was translating the Bible into Gothic. Mm. So it means somebody is not Christian. In living right. in a German Germanic speaking country, <laughs> essentially. There you uh, go. We've we've come to you to uh, use heathenry or heathen uh, rather than asatru because it's more inclusive. Uh, it gives us the mm-hmm. Anglo-Saxon and the the, the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch and the, the the continental Germans as well as the uh, Scandinavians. So so the Bakhari would identify then as heathen. Um, well, Rob Schreiber does. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's been sifting the, the heathen survivals out of Brockerai for the past uh, number of years. And mm-hmm. it, his, his work is absolutely fascinating because this is what happens when you take a native uh, heathen tradition and re-acculturate it, re-root it in a new land right. for 200 right. years. Right. And, and it's a wonderful example that we can all hope for. <laughs> well, and this is the, the conversation that Pam and I were having earlier today was about what happens in the new world. And I would, I wish we could only get Neil Gaiman in on this conversation because what happens <laughs> when you import uh-huh. the gods to a new locale and they're like, whoa, wide open spaces and new people. And, and it's just yeah. it's fantastic and phenomenal 
you know, what happens when you bring that. Because here, Pam and I live in the Appalachian Mountains where you've got the Scots-Irish blended perfectly with the, you know, the Palatine um, Germanic migration from the 1750s, we'll say. And what happens when there's a stoppage of time and there is a preservation that happens and just the songs and I'm thinking about Kari and her singing and, you know, how she heard some of the the mountain songs that are sung here and the instruments that we play here and the, you know, the mandolin, my grandmother's mandolin. And it's just mm-hmm. beautiful. And they're like snapshots of what happens when you take the Northern traditions or the, some people call them, you know, I'm with the Northern tribes or I'm heathen or I don't get a lot of Azatru either, Diana. I don't hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of heathenry. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's a very different experience on the East Coast. Very different. See, and, and well, I'm a newcomer to the to North Carolina, so I don't I don't have a lot of experience with with what they call it here. But I do have a unique um, a unique experience of being a person that that worked with the military pagans and um, within the military. You know, we had. I had all the new people that were just joining from all across the United States and even the world. And they didn't quite know what to call it. You know, Asatru was, was one of the, the main ones because the military wants to have a word. They want to be able to classify yeah. it. They, right. they, they, they glom onto Asatru. Um, but they interchangeably and, use heathen and Asatru. Yeah, and also true is is a perfectly fine word as well because it's it's you know the w- name of the state recognized religions of um, Norway and Iceland. You know, also true is is a yeah. is a is a perfectly fine word. It it um, but it means but it has such a wider um, spread of diverse um, belief system in the United States mm-hmm. than it does in Iceland or Norway. As a state religion, they're um, bound by state religious um, tolerance rules and things. And here in America, you know, the land of 10 million cults, we we <laughs> get to believe whatever we want, and that's great, but it also makes it very um tricky because the state isn't saying you can't discriminate and you can't, you know, we don't have the, the same kind of strict rules for Ossetru in the United States as they do in Iceland and Norway. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine, you know, a friend of mine in Ossetru, Norway is, um, was saying, you know, it's just, it's phenomenal here that you would allow white supremacists to use, to use the word Ossetru. And it's like, well, it's not, it's, it's not our. It's none of our business what they believe. It's just are they abiding by the law? And she's like, well, we wouldn't be. We wouldn't allow white supremacists in Ossetru in Norway because it's against the state rules. Well, it's, in, you know, as right. one of many reasons, right? I think a yeah. good a good segue into that conversation and into Diana's book Odin, which I loved and I devoured it. And thank you. Thank yes, you. 
I am the one that said, I have all of her books at home. And so it was a very minor freak out, <laughs> Diana, I have to admit. Um, but I was listening to Kari's Vodic ritual song, The Bride Sauna. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. oh, my word, I was swept away with it mm-hmm. equally mm-hmm. as I was to, Diana, your account of your encounter with Odin and the birth of Thor. <laughs> and what a lust beautiful imagery I mean I'm getting goosebumpy right now because I'm thinking about this this marriage and this like lust and this the paths that you both sing to one is printed one is heard and I guess I just wanted to segue into the the beauty of the thing and I wanted to talk to Diana about um Odin, I wanted to talk about Yord's encounter with Odin, and he's such a popular guy in the prisons, too, but we're trying oh, yeah. to <laughs> expand the definition of what we know about him. He's not simply bloodthirsty battle god, and it's such a disservice yeah. to see him in such a narrow parameter. It's like, are you are you students at all of Odin's magic, and so I guess in fact, if we involve a talk, involve a stav, we don't we don't extract Odin out of his triplex of his brothers. We always use uh, we always call Wold, Willie, and they all together um, as spirit, will, and holiness. So, mm-hmm. and we always uh, make sure that they are in an Indian closure of Sprig. So we don't we don't extract Odin. Out as a There's separate that being in There's that yeah. balance again. And Diane, I know you're short on time, so whenever, if you want to answer Gabby's question and then at, at any point, it, don't feel you think yeah, you need I, I, to I go. Can, I can give you about five more minutes. So, so exactly the, if you could repeat the question, because there was more conversation. There was. Um, basically it's it's a thank you for the multiplicity and giving us uh, a comprehensive and relatable tome to use to understand him because this reductionist thing that happens with him is so prevalent and I have to say that I mean I've awaited this book I'm excited that this book exists because it is Perfect. Um, and I'm not blowing incense smoke up your ass. I'm just simply saying um, it, gives a co- it gives a complex and much overdue relatable study of him um, in many, many different forms. And of course, I mean, you also discuss him as, you know, the three parts, Diana. So I guess if you could talk more about mm-hmm. why you felt you needed to communicate him in such a comprehensive way. Well, he has uh, over 200 by names in the lore, so he has a lot of uh, aspects. And uh, so I was doing my best to try to get a handle on it by uh, reducing them to nine general categories. <laughs> and uh, so he he's the wanderer. He is the master of, of magic in general. He is the, the winner of the runes. He is all father. He is the desired one who works with women. Uh, right. He is the battle god. Uh, he the is bail the worker. Of death. And he is the bail worker. And, and finally, and I think 
uh, My primarily, favorite. fundamentally, he, he is a God of evolving consciousness and ecstatic consciousness. Indeed. Absolutely. And do you feel like that is relevant now? Is that a thing that we need to put forward so that people can sink their teeth into that and not the easy bait of hatred and well, divisiveness? That certainly. Uh, some of it is his fault, not ours. <laughs> and he, he's been, you know, this is a two-way street here. Uh, I like this. Accountability of the God. I think, Diane, you're breaking up. I think we're we're losing you. You're cutting in and out. Yeah, well, I'm also losing uh, phone. So, uh, anyway, uh, Odin himself is taking a, uh, is acting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to come back around to where we started, possibly mm-hmm. because of the danger to our uh, world. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he's calling. We need to listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a good kind of parting line. <laughs> See mm. you all at Paganicon. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Diana. Thank you so much for okay. being our guest again. Looking forward to giving you a big hug, Diana. Yep. See you soon. Yep. Take care. Okay. Bye. Well, that was very cool. Thanks, Diana. Um. So, Kari, it's 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 all you and Gabby. I keep. You know what, Gabby? I what? keep going. I keep trying to Americanize it because I say Gabby. Don't do it. And we talk let it flow because my Gabby, Gabby, Gabby. My father speaks Sicilian. Say Gabby, 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 Gabby. So I guess <laughs> the next thing that I. I listened to um, the music that I could find, and Kari, I love it. I love how joyful it is. I love how celebratory it is. I love how, I mean, it's just radiant and necessary, and I know that it's part of the Urlog. I know it's part of the healing, and I want to know what compels you to share and to sing over us and to sing through the community and to dance. And I just want to know the motivators for you. Well, I mean, I think it is just how joyfully, how it's such a joy producing thing. Um, But, but I guess I could say in 2003, when I was working on a winter solstice ritual with, um, I was doing the rune chant part and we had a a hard on your fiddle player come in and these um, Norwegian fiddles are pretty amazing and they have these understrings that are never touched but vibrate when you uh, and make these overtones it's a really beautiful and haunting instrument and at the end of our collaboration she said you know I really I really admire uh, the work that you've done and their deep, deep root traditions and all the spirituality that you've uncovered. And she said, but, but I really believe, Kari, that you'll never really truly feel the spirit of your f- folk in your body until you can sing the songs in their languages and dance mm-hmm. their dances. And that was such a game changer for me. So I, 
I shifted my gears musically um, because I had been doing a lot of singer-songwriter stuff and I'd been Mm -hmm. doing um, some other pagan style music, but, but it was that moment 15 years ago that I said, I need to immerse in this folk Mm -hmm. Uh, tradition that is still alive in my own community and Mm -hmm. it was so profound and Mm -hmm. it continues to teach me the Mm -hmm. very first thing you know I said to my mom is I I was describing with these staff carrying women and how Gudrid sang for the Thorbjörg the Volva Thorbjörg and she goes out to the piano bench and she gets Mike and Elsie's Norwegian songbook and she's like, maybe this will help. And I'm, oh my, you know, and God. I'm, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, this is, you know, my mom doesn't know this deep, profound thing I'm doing. And I, I, I <laughs> if I weren't so respectful, I would have scoffed. But I opened up the book and the song that it opened up to is this a folk song called Shadding a Mastavin which means the honored lady with a staff. Hello. And so I'm like, there it is. There it is. It even had my name in it. It even had the name Cotty in it. So it's like the light bulb. How humbling humbling was that? How humbling was that? Extremely humbling. And I'll tell you, working with the elders in the folk music and dance community is very humbling. And it's... um, and it's profound all the time, and and, and so slightly it's, addicting. Let's be honest. Once you sit oh, with absolutely. the seniors and the elders, absolutely. you know, I don't know about you, know, you, but I sit there with my chin in both my hands, and I'm like listening intently, like a little, yep. you know, I'm just like, tell me more, sing the stuff, say the words. Well, as I was starting to, you know, so that's why I say I have as many gigs in Lutheran church basements as I do in in heathen or pagan community. You know, mm-hmm. because these are the where the elders hang out. They they flip left side in their basement. You know, the basement of the church. <laughs> you know, so if you so and I have always been one to say, in particularly in a heathen context, that you can't um, ignore your Christian urlog because that mm-hmm. is yep. disrespectful to a thousand years of your ancestry. Sure. And so you have to find ways of bridging these things, and the folk music and dance is mm-hmm. what bridges it. Um, mm-hmm. It's the thing that we can both relate to, and it's about our culture, not about our religion or our or how we pray. It's about wh- where we've come from and what we share that way. And so <laughs> I've found lots and lots of folk spiritual traditions hidden in those church basements as well. Um, mm-hmm. because they will say, oh, sure, you know, like, for example, my grandpa, who I never got to meet, was the well finder of Polk County, Wisconsin. You know, he... He's a douser? He, he was a, he cool. was the douser. So, oh but they didn't gosh. think of it as anything outside the ordinary. It was part of the folk tradition. Right. And so the, right. the, the Christian overlay was there, but it, but it didn't wish everything. And so... Right. It's in the joyfulness of discovering the the tendrils of that old root still mm. alive and and feeding them with the song so that they can flourish here in a whole so and healed then, way. 
do they then listen to you just enwrapped and so very proud and pleased to see mm-hmm. what you are doing? I mean, I've got to believe, Kari, that you are kindling a fire that is so dear to them because you're like hooked on it now. It's addictive. Let's be honest. Once you get that flavor for that ancestral fire and they see that in your eyes and you're so bright and so young and they're like, okay, yep. I'm now carrying the hopes and dreams of my entire people. Well, right, right. I have, I think the the most profound. No pressure. No, pressure. no, but the most profound encounter that I had was in a Swedish Baptist church, and I was asked to present on the staff carrying women's tradition mm. in a Swedish Baptist church, and I thought, well. Freya led me here. I must have. I must have. Yeah. Who and, am I to say no? Right. And after the presentation, this um, lady came up to me and she grabbed me by the arm, and she Ooh. said, "I'm 79 years old, and I've been waiting all my life to hear what you had to say. I knew there was something real oh. that connected me." to my deep root and to nature and I'm too old to make use of it, but you're not. So you go, you go. And I, we were both just in tears. I bet you were bawling. I'm like beside myself right now, just hearing it. It was really profound. This is what I wish I could. Well, this is what I wish I could bottle and give to people who want to go out and just buy books. And and right. they don't understand where this is coming from and, and what is leading them to, you know, when I when I say that my what I'm drawn to is more of, of the, the, the folk traditions uh, that my mother grew up, everyone in my family on my mother's side, we're, we all have prophetic dreams. We all mm-hmm. we all, uh, you know, and, and it's like no big deal. My mom used to tell me, you know, be to trees they have feelings i would talk to trees <laughs> everyone else when like, you're in it you doing? Be- because when you're yeah. in it pam it's naturalized right right and well it, and it, it doesn't right. and it doesn't conflict with christianity no not at all no. not and that's slightly. the piece, you know that's part of the piece that i think modern heathenry needs to get their heads around is Agreed. that we have we have to sing and dance these traditions. I don't know how many times I've seen this meme go around where there's a little uh, Native American boy dancing porcupine dance at a powwow, and some dumbass is like, what if our people were allowed to dance our traditional dances? And every time I see that meme, I go, you need to go find your folk dance community because they exist everywhere. You're yeah. the one who's not doing the work, man. You, you know, jackass. you know, six-year-old. I mean, right? Dance. So it's just—it's <laughs> like it yeah. is there, but you're gonna have to dance with some Lutherans if that's gonna scare the dickens <laughs> out of you. Then exactly. Oh my god. You know, but in in most Native community, there's there's very little conflict between um, Christian, you know, the Christian. Uh, Christianization of of the culture now with with the resurgence of, with a with a strong um, 
uh, resurgence of cultural practice that mm-hmm. is Christian. And that was actually, it was something that I needed. I needed to constantly be checking in with my own mother and grandmother as I was going through this deep immersion in runes and Norse mythology and cosmology and metaphysics. And my mom would keep asking me, you know, when I, when I asked her to read my rune books, um, uh, cause there were, I said, there's, I mentioned, I mentioned our family in there and I want you to be comfortable with this. And she read the chapters that, that I pointed to and she, she moved it across the kitchen table to me and she said, no, I just have one question. And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, how does this square with Christianity? And I said, <laughs> you know, I'm really glad you asked that because I've been, mm-hmm. it's, I've been thinking about this a lot. And mm-hmm. my answer is twofold. First, this is pre-Christian, so it can't be anti-Christian. Right. right. There was nothing Christian that it was going against. Mom, there's no conflict. Right. There's not a clump. And second, Jesus embodied compassion. He didn't invent it. So I'm interested to find out where in our root traditions did we have compassion. Right. Where well, in our root tradition do we have uh, the, the, the same values and ethics that we profess to be Christian? So then so, did you flip the script on your mom <laughs> and say, hmm. let's talk about Chris. Let's talk about Griff. Let's talk about these principles that bring us together in Baptist church basements or around a you know, a yeah. fire for, you know, at bloat and stumble. I mean, are, these are things that like compassion are everywhere in everything. Yeah, no, I, I felt, she was very satisfied with my answer. It was It was a very good conversation. And, you know, my mother is, fortunately, my mother is still alive. And so, you know, I am very careful to make sure that, when I am speaking, I represent, mm-hmm. even though I, I, I represent a huge family of origin. Mm-hmm. All of my mom's sisters and my sisters and all our cousins, uh, we, we have so much family and we, we know our lineage back to the 1600s mm-hmm. in Norway. So, Mm-hmm. I've I met and and worked with and learned from my third and fourth cousins in Norway, you know, over the over the last uh, ten years. Very and cool. So I'm really careful with my the impeccability of my word and deed, sure. as not just as a heathen, but because I am representing so much blood family. <laughs> That's sure. That Again, I, I no take pressure. that responsibility really, really. <laughs> I take that responsibility really, really uh, seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I don't understand why why we have this this anti Christian vein. And I don't I don't feel sometimes I get kind of uh, short. I I I get uh, I lose my patience with some of the the way some the Christians believe, but not Christianity. You know the 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 attitude that people right. give me. 
not right. I, and I have no problem at all with what Jesus, what his message was, what Jesus' right. message was. I have to be very clear with that. Um, well, and I also, at the same time, I, I understand I had like a socialist hippie Jesus in growing up, right? <laughs> yeah. And 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 a Jesus. lot of people had a very different Jesus growing up, and I don't blame anyone from, for well, going away Catholic, from Well, in Catholic parts piece. of the country, it's a starkly different reality. Yes, yeah, and and all the various different kinds of Christianity that we have in this country have a very different relationship. And so um, I'm sensitive to the fact that I have a really – tender relationship growing up Mm -hmm. my grandmother's um, words to me were to go pray in nature the way Jesus did because that was where he found yeah that was where he found I I said grandma sometimes when I'm in church I just want to get up and wiggle around and and sing and sometimes even cry and she goes she's like well you know, when you have some big praying to do, Kari, you should do what Jesus did. And you go <laughs> to the garden, you go to the mountain, you go in the nature, you know. And I so, love it. Yeah. So, I mean, I well, have because very... There is no conflict between being in the greater spiritual context of nature and putting yourself within the confines of a house or a church basement, or, I mean, the point is if your spirituality is intact, that what does the setting matter, you know, because it's, I look at, you know, it's, they're not, they're not conflicting. They don't cancel each other out. This isn't negatives and positives. I mean, you can have a Bulbastav guild and, Still call yourself a Christian if you wanted to at the end of the day. Well, I I am still a registered Lutheran, which was a good thing because even though I don't practice Lutheranism, uh, because my my good friend um, who edited my rune book married a woman from Finland, and they they wanted me to be the godmother for their child. But you have to be a registered Lutheran to be a godmother in Finland. And wow. I said, well, I never unLutheraned myself, so. <laughs> So now I'm a bi bi continental Lutheran heathen. How's that for an idea? <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. One of the things one of the things I say is I'm a polytheist. Like I don't have a problem with you know, I don't have a problem with saying that I, I um like some of what Jesus said. Um I don't have a problem with somebody who says that they, they're a Christian pagan. Uh because I'm polytheistic. I don't have a problem with, right. with saying, oh, only that God. No, you can't well, do that. Right. And I think Kari will will bear this out, and Pam, you know this too, is that deity has relationship yep. with folk magic ways and folk practice and living mm-hmm. in the earth of the earth. So deity, right. plug in whichever one works for you and then work your magic, do your stay there, sing your Galder, do all of the magic you want to do with the blessing and leadership and inspiration of whatever deity. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, right. There's I mean, a lot of yeah. There's historical precedents for Christian and heathen practices being side by side in the same household in the mm-hmm. same family, and mm-hmm. 
one one an essay that I have on my website that that you might be interested in is about folk. Um, what does it mean to be Nordic, and how I, mm-hmm. I talk about it as a folk that a folk way or folk culture has mm-hmm. three basic roots. One is who are you, what, where mm-hmm. are your ancestors, and what what urlag do you carry, and then mm-hmm. where are you, what nature are you in. So, mm-hmm. what do the people in that in that particular nature do? To, what are the folk ways that they use to survive? Right. Like you were saying, different in California than New England, sort of sort yeah. of thing. And mm-hmm. then the third leg of that stool is what helps you to integrate and transcend those other pieces. Right. And that's the form of deity, and it doesn't matter who you say who it is, what you call it, but it it has to bring ancestors in nature together in a in a unified way for you. And and that's a folk tradition. There's two there's two things that are in my head right now that that um, part of the reason I wanted Gabby to to be my my hybrid co-host again is, <laughs> is to um, because she has more of a connection with with the heathen understanding that I I, I it, it's. I don't know. I kind of look at it as a, as a, I'm more allied with it, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. I don't have. It's not calling to me like it calls to to you. I mean, parts of it do. I, I kind of. I, I love ravens. <laughs> love ravens. <laughs> but but I'm I'm definitely very very Celtic, very uh, very Scott Irish, and. Um, I think about what you're saying and, and the, the, you know, the, the, the interwoven uh, of, of the pagan ways or the old ways. I, I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it was you or Diana. I don't know exactly who said old ways, but that's what I used to say at the very beginning of, of my professing this path is I follow mm-hmm. the old ways. And to me that that's, that's far more honest to me mm-hmm. yep, than, yep. than any label. Um, that's exactly but, right. That's what what I usually say, and that's what most of the guild members say that as well. We follow the old ways of our cultural tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, and I yeah. I love I I I know a lot of people go like, scoff at at movies and say oh Hollywood, but I love how movies are a new way of storytelling, and you can take from sure. it, especially if you understand what's going on in the movies you can take from it that, that, uh, that connection. And one of my favorite movies is the, about with the, the Celtic ways or the, the Scott Irish ways is the, um, is the secret of Ronin ish. And oh, I don't know yeah. if you've ever seen that movie, but that one, yes, I you know, you've got the, mm-hmm. yeah, you've got the grandmother who's, who's like, you know, saying that's all silly fairy stuff is it's, you know, there's no real truth to that. And then she, makes the Bridget cross and spits in the heath in the, in the, right. hearth, sorry, in the hearth. Right. Exactly. You know, just exactly. stuff and nonsense. And then she does the, does the, 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 the exact traditional. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to, I want, I just wanted to bring that up. So people, you know, in my way of, of digesting what you're saying, this is how mm-hmm. it means to me. Um, mm-hmm. And yep. so you can take, Take that and make that connection with your, your, uh, your, your. What's speaking to you? Uh, most likely, mm-hmm. it's your, it's your, 
your your origin, your family of origin, your bloodlines. Um, because I was telling Gabby earlier today, <laughs> in middle school, silly middle school concert, I'm just, you know, sitting there bored having to listen to the middle school band play, and then all of a sudden they start playing this, this Scottish song, and I'm like, yeah! <laughs> 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 and I'm like, where the heck did that come from? Um, right. But I wanted wanted to speak on something that, that we touched on before um, when you were a guest here a couple weeks ago that you brought up that I think is very important to bring up what, you know, you have the, your family of origin, your, your country of origin. And Gabby even mentioned now we're in the United States, your area that you live in, there's a lot of indigenous people and there, and there's a reverence for the connection with, with, uh, with nature and there's music and dance with that too. And Mm -hmm. You, you spoke, and I don't want to want you to get into it yet because I wanted to bring up this one example. But you spoke about how that gets kind of woven into into what what you do now as well. But I remember being at a, a thing in uh, the Pine Ridge uh, Reservation in South Dakota that it was a a concert for Indigenous people um, that the Indigo Girls put on. <laughs> And they had all sorts of different people there. Yeah, it was it was really cool. Um, and they had uh, I'm trying to remember her name. It just like left my head. Uh, it's mm. it's Bird, Little Bird, Bird Song. She's very and I'm sorry, this is so disrespectful to her. She is very well known for her hoop da- her hoop dancing. Mm-hmm. And she, mm-hmm. I watched her do a hoop dance. And I was in total awe as she was doing a hoop dance. And if you haven't seen it, go ahead and look it up on on YouTube. You can see examples oh, I've been of a hoop to dance. Many powwows, yeah. Yeah, um, a hoop dance is calling quarters. It's it's making a circle, and that's where right. a lot of our 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 ways overlap. Convert. And when you when, mm-hmm. right when you when you watch, you know, I, I guess I'm getting kind of Joseph Campbell esque. And then a little bit with uh, what Gabi said is that you know deity is is deity. It's gonna uh, it's gonna manifest however it manifests with with you. But it's it was really cool because I, I went to Jackie Littlebird. I think is her name. It's just good came job, I think that's Pam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. But it was like really cool watching her basically call quarters, and she was using mm-hmm. the same correspondences that most. Uh, Wiccan Jews with the colors and the directions and all, and it's it's it was really neat. <laughs> I guess is what I'm trying to say is it was like a very spiritual thing for me to watch that and and come up to her and say, well, this is how it what it means to me, what your mm. what your dance meant to me, rather than oh well, your people get to know, but my people don't. So that's, that music that, that leads. Yeah. That leads me to a question for Kari then. Um, when you take your Norwegian Lutheran background and raising in this incubator in the new world back over to Norway, do you suddenly feel so Minnesotan? Um, the experience that I've had going back to Norway has been really interesting because um, it's a lot like the Scots-Irish 
uh, piece that you were talking about yeah. in Appalachian yeah. Mountains. It's like old dialect. I speak an old dialect of Norwegian that doesn't exist. I, you know, right. or pronounce things. I don't speak Norwegian uh, fluently or anything, but I, but I would pronounce things the way my grandma pronounced things. And I get it. So I totally get they're, it. <laughs> they would smile and they would. Uh, I make catch, fun of you. Catch them secretly. Catch no, I like, catch them. No, <laughs> the Norwegians don't make fun of each other. <laughs> but I would She's catch so them. American. I would catch them sort of staring and smiling, and I'd, I'd say, what? And they'd say, oh, you just remind us of our grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I said, well, that's probably because I learned how to be Norwegian from my grandmother. <laughs> there was so, this group of Russian Germans that ended up in South Dakota. They were German, moved to Russia, and then they ended up in South Dakota, and their little piece of language is is endangered, like what you're saying. Right. Mm-hmm. It's endangered. Yep. And the the lady comes is giving a I was at a brown bag thing that she was talking about this and fascinating mm-hmm. fascinated and she kept saying my grandmother would always say Pashao, Pashao and I could never figure out what she was saying and I went Pashao and I went, Oh Pashao <laughs> uh... years of her trying to figure out what this meant. <laughs> She's like, Oh, I oh, know what that funny. is. That's I'm sorry, squirrel. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. but it's but it's true. I mean that that piece of of having that incubated um, piece. There are, are only two speakers of Holling dial, old Holling dialect left in the world, and they are in. Uh, one of them lives in um, in Spring Grove, Minnesota, and the other one lives across, just across the border in Decorah, Iowa. So it's oh my gosh! You know, they send that linguists cool? here to study um, this work, and so some of the the old meanings of the words mm-hmm. um, have been maintained here, but mm-hmm. have changed there. So mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the words for, for example, shouting, where for here in Minnesota, it always means either married married lady or honored lady. Mm-hmm. And in Norway mm-hmm. the one youth was saying, Well, yeah, but it, it can also mean bitch. And I said, <laughs> it most certainly can not. <laughs> no, it does not. You you know, words that honor women tend to be maligned in in um modern culture and, and that's one of them that you're not gonna going to do that too. <laughs> so. Broad, right. broad anyway. was considered a, a positive thing. Back in Shakespearean time, I read somewhere that broad, mm. when you called a woman a broad, you know, it's like yeah. an honorist. <laughs> We're not so just any, any, Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so, don't take it there, Pam. Don't take it there. <laughs> but I do, but I do, one of the things that I really um, wanted to, like one of the first things I really wanted to do when I got to Norway was to um, understand the plant life, and so yeah. I visited the um, historical medicine garden in the um, mm. folk museum in Oslo. It's like a big outdoor museum, and it has 
buildings from the different eras and gardens that are planted from those eras. And, and it was like, geez, no wonder they stopped when they got to Wisconsin, Minnesota, because it's, it's the same plants, you know, that yep. yarrow and Queen's mm-hmm. Anne's lace and ladies mantle mm-hmm. and certain um, types of plantain and just, you know, like really the same medicine plants and the same medicine plant. So that's one of the places where the immigrant population mm-hmm. um, was able, uh, could, could um, communicate and bring things to the table for the native population in this mm-hmm. um, region. Mm-hmm. Um, birch is the other thing, the birch bark, the birch bark, yes, um, the use of birch mm-hmm. for all these different things was, was similar to um, what we did in Scandinavian Finland um, as, as here that the Ojibwe um, would, use, would use it for. Mm-hmm. Um, we tapped birch trees because we didn't have maple trees uh, in Scandinavia, so the birch, birch making birch syrup was similar, um, and birch tar. And I have experience with that too because we have yeah. birch syrups and maple syrups in New England, so I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, never so those are, yeah. So wow. those are points of um, connection that we could make. Um, mm-hmm. With a within the, but we still um, our 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 immigrant ancestors still fell prey to the what I would say the disease of whiteness, where sure. they took you know rejecting language and rejecting culture and um, joining into the the um, trying to become Conforming. part of the overculture yeah. and yeah. And so that's part of why I think, well, it's a, it's a big reason why on the Standing Rock website it said to our white allies, the most important thing you can do is find your own culture. Right. <clears throat> right. And it, it also, we talked, started talking right, right on the top of the show about genealogy and 2010 census, the top two hobbies of Americans were listed as genealogy and gardening. Wow. Because we are aching for connection with our ancestors and with nature. I would agree. You know, and and when you were talking about the whiteness, it's actually something Gabby and I were talking about earlier because I'm half Turkish. I'm, I, and my grandmother comes from like Crimea um, mm. And and the, the, where I am in in Turkey, where my family is from in Turkey, is near Azerbaijan and Georgia. Um, mm. And and the, I I I think Gabby's laughing because of the thing that I say. I tell people because <laughs> my family's from the Caucasus Mountains. I say I'm far more Caucasian than most everybody I know. Oh, it's because that's, that's where truth. my family's from. <laughs> yeah. But when when I got funny. back. <laughs> When I got back the results, I had what was considered a pretty rare um, uh, mitochondrial DNA signature that mm. they don't see a lot of because a lot of it's it's us here in the United States, mostly middle class uh, white people who are doing these tests. So the pool that they have to use this from 
when they mm. see these Europeans with this signature, they say, well, you're probably Romani. You're probably, mm. uh, you know, and, and I hope I really don't offend anyone when I say this because it's not a, uh, it's not a, it's a derogatory term, but most people know Romani as gypsy. Mm-hmm. That's just for people who don't know, don't use that word, use Romani. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, right. I started, you know, I started looking in this, 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 uh, help type I, I am. And I, I said, no, it's because I'm from the Caucasus mountains where it's not mm-hmm. rare because like you said, you know, find your own culture. Mm-hmm. They try to, you know, they tr- basically try to, for lack of a better term, whitewash me and say, well, you must be gypsy because you're not from mm. here. And it's right. like, well, thanks for guessing, but um, wrong because <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's not no. what that is. Right. Um, I'm going to, let me, I need to ask um, Kari a question. So I'm going to blow you up a little bit here because you were named the innovative folk artist in the 2018 Scandinavian Folk Music Preservation Symposium. That's a lot of words. Uh, (laughs) It is, but props to you. Um, How does that, the words innovative right Mm. next to folk speaks to that whole, (laughs) what has been, what is, and what is becoming. And of course, that's a Nornian reference, Pam. But Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is you are honoring (laughs) Orlog, you are healing, you are bringing your heritage, your history, your love of ancestry into the now, mm-hmm. and you are giving it forward in a very indelible way, both by the human experience of healing people, but also you've got CDs and MP3s and stuff. Right. Um, what the hell is that like? <laughs> What's that like? <laughs> Uh, well, it, it's, it's, uh, it's really, it's wonderful. Um, it's wonderful. And, um, a lot of, so this symposium that's coming up, um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison is in April and, um, the, there are, when you have traditional music, um, you have some people who are extremely um, active in the preservation of yeah. the music as it They're is. They're preservationists. They're purists. Yep, absolutely. And and that is an incredibly important piece um, because if it, you know, uh, if somebody hadn't decided we need to pre- preserve the oral tradition of right. the Eddas right. and write them down, we wouldn't have them. Right. Probably, you know. Right. So it's an incredibly important piece um that I have a deep respect for. And then um and then there is the the performance of those traditional pieces in um in groups of of traditional folk musicians where something gets learned precisely the way the master has been, has taught it. And then it has something added on to it um, by the student 
but that starts out with that mm-hmm. firm base. And so then we get uh, a living tradition of the folk music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then and then there's someone like me who takes both those pieces and then pushes the boundary of it and adds electronica and adds Ooh, um, brings old Norse and rune pieces into a folk song um, mm-hmm. platform, you know. So so I'm I'm kind of time warping. Um, the, yes, you are these pieces. Yeah, so. Um, you're bending you're bending time. I wish we still had Diana on the phone because there was something I wanted to tie you both together with. And she's, you know, in her 10th chapter of Odin, she speaks about mm. him as, you know, the god of ecstasy and how absolutely rapturous it is to sing and for me most often cry while singing um, mm-hmm. during ritual and during healing because you are breathing in and singing out the breath. So this is very Odinic stuff. It's very Antu stuff. And you're mm-hmm. healing. And it reminds me, like, this is one of my, you know, adorations of singing the old songs and singing the new mm-hmm. songs in honor of the old ways, which is what you're doing. You're transcending mm-hmm. these boundaries, which is part of that trifecta that you were describing between Urlog and the region you find yourself in, in transcending all of it. I think about Cassandra from, you know, Greek myth who was cursed because she had the wisdom and she had foresight, but she could not, what she lacked was Odin's third gift to us, which was the meat of poetry. And so Mm. I think about the runes that Odin won. I think about the wisdom and sacrifice at Mimir. And then I think about the necessity of the poetry, the necessity to sing it to others. If you cannot communicate what ecstatic process has happened with you, for you, you become insane, which was the story of Cassandra. She couldn't speak it. She couldn't be understood. She couldn't poetry at her people. She couldn't Mm. get it out. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what's beautiful about what you are doing because you're not just doing it for you. You're doing it for all of us. Well, I really am humbled and appreciative of what you're saying and, um, and I'm really, I'm just really grateful that I, that I am, was born here now in the midst of this to do this work. <laughs> I, this would be probably a good time to, to play the, the other song that you, you sent me. Um, and yes. I'll probably slaughter the title of it, but I'm going to try it anyhow. <laughs> okay. So. I, I know because I, I like to do this because I, I love to try to pronounce things. Um, I love you. So it's <laughs> Morsha Vin uh, Helmine. Am I close? Pretty close. Vidalmine. Yeah. Now, this is a song that is in Vodic and it is a Finno Ugric language, and there are only about 85 Vodic speakers left. It's a small place in Estonia, 
And it's a women's ritual whisking of the bride before her sauna and then the sauna song. Um, so she's oh, got... Cry. Yeah, she's, so she's <laughs> being Sorry. whisked with... She's being whisked at the beginning, choopy, choopy, with five birch switches and uh, three birch twigs and five sin switches. And then the vesti is the water as it hits the rocks and it's Water from the brook is for luck. Water from the river is for strength. Water from the sea is for wisdom. Water from the spring is for success. So it's 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 breathing in the steam that carries the blessing of those waters. Wow! I'm sorry. I have to take a second to you know, no pun 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 is intended. Soak that in. I'm going to say, I'm going to own that pun, you know, that's because we don't, we take for granted water is water because we just turn the faucet mm-hmm. and it comes on and we don't understand how we don't under, we don't have that connection to water that right. our ancestors did. And who's, 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 wow. when you say that, Tammy, who, who do you mean? We like when, when you say we, that you mean general current generation, no, what what do you, what was your question again? What do you when you say we don't see that connection? I mean, it's no, pagan it's, people. It's, I think pagan people. I think may or may not consider that. I think that that I know. I I ask for water. Can you bring? People say I'm going to the beach. What do you want me to bring? And I'm like, water. Get me a jar of water. You know? Right. I I have yeah. jars of water right now in my house. I have one that I charged. Uh, I have hurricane water from um, uh, right. like a year and a half ago. I mean, I and I charged it in the in the eclipse. So I mean, I get it. <laughs> I think I a think lot of us we... do. I think a lot of us do. Otherwise, I mean, otherwise, Kari wouldn't well, and be I, as. I you think know, that um, <laughs> like Masaru Emoto's book, the hidden messages in water, and the yeah. what the bleep movie talking about water. I think. More and more people are understanding how powerful water is and what an important thing it is and how Mm -hmm. it's a limited resource and how we have to. But I think it's true in terms of like the general overculture doesn't have a connection to where water comes from or where their food comes from, you know, and 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 I I, I I would agree with you there. Right. Well, that's what I think is I think that we that it's easy for us to lose sight of that and, and food. But that's a different different, uh, different a whole totally different uh, discussion that I would like to have someday because, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and play yep. this song. <laughs> yeah. There we go.
Modern pagans, see, I'm learning, Gabby. A lot of modern pagans <laughs> like to have this all sunshine and 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 you know sweetness. And um, right. we don't sacrifice animals, but that is part of the circle of life and death in a lot right. of old ways. And we have this. And, and you're probably wondering where I'm going with this because I'm trying to segue. No, into- I'm not. I know exactly where you're going. This is good. <laughs> Well, and that that comes from a misunderstanding of things that that are predators. You know, we they get maligned. Like, da da da. The reason I'm bringing this up: raptors, <laughs> raptors. <laughs> raptors, raptors, and and so Kari, Kari, will will if you explain why I brought this up, then Kari will be in touch with why we're talking about raptors now. Oh, she'll get it. She'll totally vibe this out. <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't hurt that Hugen and Munin are also featured at yes. the Carolina Raptor Center. Um mm. and really? what's really yeah. I mean there's <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so prepare yourselves for a whole bunch of brain bombs because um it's funny if you think about um the connection between dance and music, and we were having the conversation this morning, Pammy, about Animalia and our connection to the land, the land spirits, the land whites, um, and the creatures, the flora and the fauna. So whether it's birch or whether it's maple or whether it's edelweiss or if it's crows or ravens or raptors, I think that we have a sacred obligation to honor those connections in as many different ways as we can, not simply by tagging ourselves with some, you know, name of a critter, but understanding its reality today um, and what its history is, what its mythos is, what its lore is, but also why is it, you know, that raptors are disproportionately showing up in animal hospitals. And, you know, I don't know, Kari probably doesn't know this, but the North Carolina Raptor Center that is right here in Huntersville, where I have my shop and where I'm raising my family, is the largest and oldest raptor hospital in the world. Wow, Um, very cool. It is super very cool. And I think there's a stewardship question here. There's a legacy question here. There's a heritage question here. And I think it's got to do with, you know, is our hand on the stave? Is our hand in the orlog? Are we healing? Are we acting? Are we talking towards movement? Or are we just 
pinning something on our shirt that says, I've got a super cool raptor name. <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I think, yeah. I think it's about responsibility and accountability. Um, yeah. You know, and that's, so the reason why we're talking about this now is because the shop um, that I, you know, run, it's Laughing Birth Spellcrafting and Ancestral Arts, and it's basically an ancestral arts gallery. And the only way to be in the shop is if you are an art form or you produce an art form, and that can also be music and dancing, and it has been that. Um, Chris Welsh, one of my favorite people, uses traditional um, Germanic, Nordic, Swedish instruments, ancestral instruments, and he plays at my shop because I want people to have a connection to what their magic is from Mm -hmm. their you know, countries of origin, their families of origin, what happens when you come here to the new world, quote-unquote, even though it's just as old, um, uh-huh. and what kind of magic that weaves. And to be in the shop, it has to be an art form that's been practiced for hundreds or thousands of years, whether that's carving drinking horns or pouring beeswax candles or, you know, um, taxidermying skulls whether those are raptor skulls or other critter skulls. And there's a preservation and a reverence that I think needs to happen. Um, And so I'm trying, I guess successfully, I shouldn't say trying, but I'm putting my hand on the plow, so to speak, to role model for our community. Are we doing as much as we could be doing for our entire Spiritual ecosystem? Is that a thing? Mm-hmm. It could be. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I believe that it is. Um, and raptors are kind of, it's a crux point because there's so many pagans and heathens that, that name themselves for creatures and may not know what dire circumstances those creatures mm-hmm. are in. Mm. Um, yeah. And so it's a, it's a, it's a big deal for me. It's a motivator for me. I like to put my activity and my money where my mouth is mm-hmm. in the hopes that I'm stirring up motivation and others to jump in it with me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So what, well what, are, you, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing with the, the raptors? Oh, okay. Well, so... <laughs> The interesting, the interesting part with this is how we go from ravens and corvids into raptors and stuff. Okay, so the Raptor Center um, is only a couple miles from my house, and they've been operational for 30 years. And I've always had a membership since I moved into this area. But they recently, I think this is the fourth year, my third, their fourth, where they have a talent to table, talent to table, um, fundraiser every year and when the money that you it's their fundraiser to build a bigger better raptor hospital um mm-hmm. and just a little asterisk on the hospital and the growth of the organization they treat about 3000 raptors a year that's a lot mm-hmm. and a some lot. of these birds are flown in some are driven in some are dropped off but the number one reason why these things are happening, sometimes it's a natural accident that happens, 
sometimes it's a shooting issue um, and birds mm-hmm. are shot down. But the number one reason why raptors are ending up in the hospital is because people throwing food out of the sides of their cars going down roadways mm-hmm. brings tiny little ground creatures to the side of the road and hawks and vultures uh, and raptors yeah. on the telephone wires are sitting there because they're about to swoop down and catch their next meal. So mm-hmm. yeah. the windshield accident, the, you know, slamming into the cars, that's happening because of our behavior. Yeah. And again, this comes back to stewardship and it comes back to, are we being educated about this? Are we thinking about our actions and the impact that that has on our environment? If you're going to wear the name Raven or Eagle or, you know, I'd love to see a friend named Vulture. That's not used often enough, I don't think. Um, <laughs> no. But, right, so I think that if we're going to wear these names, then communing with the spirits of these creatures also means paying respect to their reality. And so yeah. I'm involved with their, their annual fundraiser, um, and I wanted as much I wanted pagans to get their hands into the stewardship of the environment, the ecology, as much as I wanted to see the establishment see pagans stepping in saying, we're not invisible. We're not fictional either. We are yeah. real people, business people, professional people, school age people, because I've got teenagers going to this event. I've got 60 somethings going to this event. It's a, there needs to be an awareness on every side. Pagans need to be aware of what raptors need, the larger context in which pagans find themselves, the Christian community, the secular community, need to recognize that pagans are stewards and that we do feel compelled. It's not just playing cosplay. This isn't just something we try on and put down at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Just not exactly. a full moon pagan, like a like a only only Christian on Sunday, you're only pagan on the full moon, kind of. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I well, think that's yeah. incredibly important, and that that is. Um, um, I agree with you in terms of that. It is a um, uh, a spiritual. Um, uh, commandment, if you will, yeah. that yeah. if we are truly revering Earth as our mother and uh, nature as our teacher, then we have to immerse in all aspects right. and, right. and and roll up our sleeves and do the work. Right. And other Absolutely. animals, their brothers and sisters, especially when you're talking Absolutely. about raptors. Because raptors, you know, we we like to think of raptors, raptors, those are so cool, eagle, hawk. But they they need us to be their voices. They need us to protect them. Um, A lot of people don't understand don't understand those those birds. And 
you know, in in the greater sense of of animals as our brothers and sisters, not just the the raptors, not just the corvids, um, but I think that that working with animals is a perfect way for people to come out of the broom closet and be active in right. the community because we right. do have that understanding, that reverence of treating animals as as our brothers and sisters. We do right. understand Absolutely. that we share this. That's something that a lot of people in the secular world, in the Christian world, um, feel very strongly about. And when we when we can come out of the out of our shadows and be allies with them, that is a really mm-hmm. good opportunity for us. It's, right. I agree. I absolutely agree. No one, you know, if you're all working on the project of um, cleaning up a, a highway so that right, you right. know food scraps aren't luring small animals in. Nobody cares if you're who you pray to if you're picking up garbage to save exactly. animals. <laughs> exactly. You know? Exactly. Hello. Yes. Yep. Yep. I really want to see this 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 section of highway um cleaned by <laughs> God is about in. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Adopt you know, a highway. You know, Sam, just because you've said that, you realize now I'm going to have to make this a thing, right? So thank you yes. for that. Yay. We have, uh, yeah, one of our he- uh, heathen kindreds in uh, Minneapolis, Volkshoff Kindred, does, um, did adopt a highway. Volkshoff Kindred um, does a highway cleanup piece up here. We really do have, a, we really do have quite a, um, a lot of, Socially active, active and um, um, socially, politically, environmentally active uh, members of the community here. Um, but it, I think Minnesota has a, a, a strong legacy of environmental activism mm-hmm. since, yeah. the, since the 70s. We've, you mm-hmm. know, we really, and it, it's a do. It's sort of a sacred duty. Um, we feel. Yeah. It has a sacred duty because we live upstream on the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. we we know that we're the we're that we're at the headwaters, and that what we send down the mouth is is our is part of the impeccability of of, of mm-hmm. how we are and and what we need to do. There's so there we do have we do have some some good um, environmentalism going on here and. Mm-hmm. And that 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 kind of stuff gets um, brought up in the circum, you know, in Paganicon. There will be, mm-hmm. you know, you can sign up for different things and um, different groups. So here's what we've been doing, you know. So it's a it's a way to to not just present new concepts, but to celebrate right. the work we have already done. Well, but, you know, one of the things. That- Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Pam. Mm-mm. I was going to say one of the things Mm-mm. I really miss about South Dakota is the air. It is so mm. clean and so fresh, and it's hard to describe it to people who haven't it been around. And I can just, it does. It tastes sweet. I know. It oh, I love sweet. it. Different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I miss it. Yeah. Well, in this yeah. Thing, it's stewardship, and I think that People get a deeper 
I think they get a deeper layer out of their pagan spirituality when they've got their hands in it and they can feel like a valued contributor. Like I did a thing. Mm -hmm. I showed honor and reverence. And yet, you know, Kari, I've got five kids. Holy cow. And so many others Mm -hmm. that (laughs) claim me as their mom. But um, I have to, I can't look them in the face and say that I've turned a blind eye to the conditions I'm handing over to them. I mean, I have an obligation. And at the same time, when I fulfill this obligation, I get the magic of Mm -hmm. watching these birds in flight Mm -hmm. or watching them groom themselves or watching them chitter at each other through their enclosures when they're rehabbing. Mm. It's It's a beautiful gift all around to oneself and one's paganism and it just it it adds a invaluable layer to say wow I'm really proud of my involvement with this I'm Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. loving being a pagan person in this world yeah exactly and I can't I can't I still have to reiterate it's very important for us to find ways to be visibly in a positive manner and and mm-hmm. take away that you know oh yeah you're goofy oh you think you're a witch um right all that all that you know mm-hmm. oh you're a saint especially here in the southeast i right. it they there's such misunderstanding about us here in the southeast mm-hmm. that well i do i do know this one place <laughs> i do know this classes and there's a lot of education going on um it i mean it's 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 true it's educational on all level in all forms and i mean visibility is huge i mean kari knows this wherever she goes she wears the the obligation exactly it's it's you're wearing this cloak of legacy and heritage like she's giving Mm -hmm. forward into the future while honoring the past. And the same is true for these acts of stewardship in the mm-hmm. environment. It's, it's essential. I mean, we are, yeah. you know, be, we are becoming the, the, the wonderful cosmic combustion of, you know, our inspiration, that whole breath, that whole ecstasy that we were talking about, the rapture of, you know, communicating song is the colliding of our our past with our future right here in the now as we act at the raptor center or as we sing at an event or as we heal our children or our community it's it's a big thing man to fit in your heart space yeah fantastic (laughs) go ahead um, well, I was. I don't know. The, the, the thing I wanted to say is is speaking on on what what uh, your shop does to create community. What I hope this podcast does to create community, <laughs> and what Paganicon does to create community. Um, right. You know, you were telling me earlier today, Gabby, about people who show up at your shop and just cry because they didn't know that this existed. And yes. I think that that's a, that's an important thing as well. I what's the name Pagonicon. of your shop, Gabby? 
It's Laughingbrook Spellcrafting and Ancestral Arts. So it's Spellcrafting mm-hmm. and Ancestral Arts. So it's, it's at once it's a mercantile for people to come get supplies at the same time that it is a gallery of ancestral mm-hmm. art forms. So they're purchasable. But I also do have the artisans come into the shop and do demos, especially on festival days in the um, in the town that we're in. And I have um, ancestral musicians come in, ancestral singers come in, ancestral, mm-hmm. you know, if they do uh, fine art or if they make jewelry in ancestral ways, I have them do demos so that people can go, wow, this is still a thing. Yeah, it's mm. still a thing. It's cool. huge. It's imp- it's important, and visibility is everything. And you, visibility can of, be podcasts. Yeah. Speaking of, do you have a uh, presence online that you want to? We have a website you want to talk about? Or? We have our Facebook page. I like. Okay, so the web page, I let it go into the oblivion because. <laughs> it was not interactive enough for me. People couldn't mm-hmm. comment and get at me quick enough. People, I I would have to have been loading like these PDFs and JPEGs and images to it. And I was like, you know what? Screw coding. So I'm completely on, I've got some presence on Instagram. I don't tweet because I like to say my shit in, comment, in, in person. Um, <laughs> but I'm all over Facebook with, what artists we're featuring, um, what events are coming up, or what classes are coming up. Um, and, and what's your Facebook meet, page called? It is Laughing Brook Spellcrafting and Ancestral Arts. Right. It's lengthy, but it's well worth the typing. Make it easy. If you're listening to this this podcast on Blog Talk Radio, it is in the link to the Facebook page is in the description of the show. So, and yeah. Kari, I'm going to send this to you as a message. I pasted it, posted it on um, underneath the the Pagans Tonight Radio Network uh, post about the show. So it's it's on there as well for people to check it out. Great. Go ahead. You're I just. <laughs> Thank you, Pammy. That's what I'm here for. It's been cool. It's been very nice to have you as a co-host guest hybrid, and to have Kari, uh, sorry, Kari, as the as the the guest that stayed for to be part of another co-host hybrid guest. Thing yeah, on your segment. For Thanks, Kari. Hour after. Yeah, that's appreciated. Thank you, Kari. Yeah. Well, you're so welcome. I'm. I really enjoyed talking to you both and I'm really glad that you're doing the work you're doing and I really really appreciate coming on and, and being able to share this with you and thanks so much for having me. I learned me. a lot. Thank you. I, <laughs> I learned a lot. I learned a lot from, from you and Diana and and Gabby. I I'm I would like to have I'm I'm gonna have stop by and say hi to Susan if you will. Susan Harper, Doctor Susan Harper. Uh if you would please at Paganicon, she's one of our hosts for, she does the alternating Wednesdays here with her show, All Acts of Love and Pleasure. And she will be presenting a workshop on basically how to avoid being accidentally turf. You know, basic, how do you welcome, right. How do you welcome trans people into your, into, into your space, into your rituals and, and your community. Um, 
So that's something that she's very uh, active in. Yeah, she's she's pretty cool. Um, she's presenting she, him. Yeah, she'll be presenting there at Paganicon, and Fantastic. I'm working out a way for her to 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 you know uh, say hi to people on on Saturday and and be able to put some of it on the on the podcast on on Pagans Tonight on Saturday so people can get a little bit of a feel. I'm still I still have to work out the details with her on how we can do this. So. You know, record somebody. You mean we're something. going next year? Is that what you mean to say, Pam? No, no, she's. <laughs> uh, you know, they've been trying to. I mean, I would here. say you should do. <laughs> yes. See, mm, Kari agrees, Pam. Yeah, you know, I have agoraphobia. <laughs> You've experienced it firsthand. She's only okay, an so- hour hour away from me and Wendy Roll was there and I paid my money to go and, and be part of Wendy's <laughs> class and I called on the road like about 20 minutes from the shop saying I can't go I have to go home so yeah. what did I say I said I love you and you don't have yeah, to because Wendy loves the shop and she loves to perform there so she will be back you will see her you well, me I'm going to have to Figure out how I can get over there. Yes! Twist my arm, Kari. Twist my arm, Kari. So I have to write off your plane fare as a tax write-off. That would not be difficult to do. Well, I would be all the way up for it. And, well, I'll look around and see if there's any Sons of Norway groups over there so I can... Maybe do more a, than do a church likely. basement gig. Just to get <laughs> church basement. <laughs> Woo! Yeah. Volvostov <laughs> Guild. Woo woo. Yeah. <laughs> right on. That is I, I want to go ahead and mention uh, Chris Shelton was my guest two weeks ago. He's going to be doing, he was a Scientologist and he's spoken out a lot about Scientology and he's going to do a really interesting uh, show, uh, workshop on safe sex, uh, S-E-C-T-S. So mm-hmm. that'll be interesting. S.J. <laughs> uh, Tucker, yeah, that is. S.J. Tucker is going to be there with her musical ways. And um, mm-hmm. if you want to find out more about Paganicon, paganicon.org. And uh, and hopefully we'll have have them back again next year, the guests. Kari, thank you so much for being on the show. I have to wrap things up real quick here. Uh, Kari is also mm-hmm. a frequent guest uh, on Lunatic Mondays with Laura Gonzalez here on Pagans Tonight. So thank you very much for your contribution for that. Uh, Gabby, hopefully right. I can get you on here more often. I really, I really like the way that we work together, uh, and I, I really appreciate it. you donating some time tonight okay. uh, and, and, and a two-hour conversation today talking about all sorts of things. Squirrel, yes, <laughs> all the things. So much, <laughs> all the things. Much love to both mm-hmm. of you uh, and to Diana. Kom alle, skal vi da? Ready? Left together, left together, left together. Kom 